And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be. Around this rotating sphere, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when uh, just about anything can happen. And we try to, if not be there, at least uh, cover it and talk about it. Well, tonight we're going to be doing another edition of our continuing series in extraterrestrial communications. And there's a couple of very interesting new wrinkles which have occurred in the last week, which we're going to encompass. And we're going to spend some time tonight just kind of talking among ourselves about the meaning of what we're doing, because uh, it is far exceeded Uh, I guess almost anybody's expectations, well, maybe except mine. (laughs) But then I have very big expectations, and sometimes the universe is kind to you, and it it answers. In this case, um, someone has answered the phone. Remember that old movie with the uh, E.T. phone home? Well, we tried calling E.T., and E.T., whoever E.T. is, and we will discuss the various options for all the new listeners who have come to the other side of midnight. I did uh, coast to coast uh, for the first time in seven years, a little over a week ago. And all kinds of interesting things have happened since, not the least of which is that we have a significant bump in our listening audience. Welcome to you, one and all. Um, You're going to hear us tonight drill down on this really remarkable experiment where we are talking to someone we're talking in code in the fundamentals frequencies and measurements of uh, basically the foundation of hyperdimensional physics we're broadcasting on two frequencies two uh, very high frequency um, wavelengths or frequencies uh, in the vhf band uh, covering both 144.1 megahertz that's mega cycles a million cycles per second and 432 megahertz or 432 million cycles per second and those numbers are not arbitrary as you will hear tonight as we go through uh, uh, the evening and then the morning Um, and we have been joined tonight by uh, an additional member of the very enterprising pun intended enterprise mission um, away team who was doing actually receiving and recording uh, these signals from whoever we have uh, opened hailing frequencies to and we will uh, welcome him to our um, merry band our panel for this morning uh, very shortly but for all of you who are new to the show I want to direct you to how to get to a section of the website and the program we call radio with pictures uh, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Click on that. That will take you to our home page. And then on the home page, you will see near the top a very large banner which says Stonehenge ET transmissions, more continuing responses for March 12th, 9 p.m. to midnight Pacific. Oh, and by the way, tonight's the night that we spring forward. So we Move the clocks at 2 a.m., wherever you are in our listening audience, forward one hour. And I've meant to put up a link to that uh, 
And of course, with all the other stuff going on, I forgot. So that's why I'm remembering now to tell you at 2 a.m. your local time. And for you on the East Coast, you'll be uh, into our third hour. So you're going to want to, during the show, as applies to uh, one of our guests this morning, you're going to want to set your head, your head, your clock ahead by one hour, but don't do it until 2 a.m. Okay, otherwise you'll get really, really confused. Um, and remember the old cliche, spring forward, fall back. So you're going to set your clocks ahead because it's spring. Uh, actually, technically, it's not spring for another couple of weeks, but uh, uh, what's another couple of weeks among friends? Anyway, so tonight. Um, so back to how you find us. Uh, you click on tonight's banner for March 12th uh, on the home page. That will take you to our guest page. And uh, under the guest page, it's, you'll see a big uh, banner which says to listen to the show. And that takes you to a live stream of the show. If, you, uh, if you're already listening, obviously, you don't have to click on that. Below that, it says guest page, and it says fast links to items. And it's got my name and my other guests tonight. Click on my name. That will take you directly to my section down the page of Radio with Pictures. Our first two items are kind of standard since Christmas. They are direct links to the uh, Web Space Telescope blog page. That's link number one. And link number two is the very interestingly laid out Where is Web NASA locator page, which shows you a whole bunch of details. You can kind of prowl around uh, that site and you'll see how far away it is in its six-month-long halo orbit around the uh, L2 position with definitions of what L2 is and all that. So everything you want to know about web can be found uh, through those links. And what you're seeing uh, to the right of the um, caption, which tonight says web will use spectroscopy to study composition of distant galaxies. And that's kind of interesting because they've been going through the instrument commissioning process of the um, uh, instruments that are attached to Webb that are going to be taking the light by all 18 um, hexagonal mirrors when they get to where they focus them into one uh, image. And there's an intermediate step, which is the graphic, uh, the GIF on the right, which shows, you know, when they first, you know, kind of took an image through uh, the um, one of the instruments, one of the cameras, they got all those separate telescope images separately, and then they had to focus them, and that's what that gift transition is from their original unfocused um, layout to a more focused condition. And now what they're going to do is to move each of those separate star images when they're all in fine focus, and they're going to lay them literally by moving the mirrors left, right, up and down with little motors. They're going to move them so ultimately of this one G-type star, which is located uh, in the constellation of Ursa Major, uh, the Great Bear. Actually, it's probably within the, the Big Dipper, which is the asterism within the constellation of the Great Bear, the circumpolar constellation for most of the Northern Hemisphere, because it never really sets unless you're farther south toward the equator. They will take that image and superimpose all those 18 separate telescope mirrors so they form one giant mirror, which is almost 22 
feet in diameter made of uh, uh, beryllium with a width of gold uh, vacuum deposited on top. Why gold? Well, because this is an infrared telescope and gold reflects infrared energy better than aluminum or silver or some other metal. So anyway, all that you want to know about Webb and its deployment and the commissioning and all that is available on link number one and where it is and where the instruments are and, you know, some picky little details like their temperatures. Because uh, remember, they're on the shadow side of this huge tennis court sized multi-layered sun shield. So the temperatures in this artificial night where the telescope is going to hang out for its entire life, never seeing sunlight again, unless there's a problem, and there won't be. Uh, the temperatures back there are really now plunging toward absolute zero, where the temperatures on the day side uh, of that sun shield, I saw one temperature which was like uh, almost 130, 140 degrees, because remember, the L2 position is uh, still relatively close to the Earth. It's within a million miles of the Earth's distance to the sun. So the fall off of temperature uh, with distance from the sun really is not material. So it's very hot on the sun side and incredibly cold approaching absolute zero on the shadowed side. And that's where infrared telescopes like to live in the dark when it's cold so that the infrared from the telescope does not overwhelm the infrared coming from the various targets, be it stars or other planets circling other stars or gas clouds or the most distant early forming galaxies right after the Big Bang, which is one of the major targets that Webb is going to be looking for. Item number three. Now, obviously, this program is taking place against the backdrop of this extraordinary catastrophic geopolitical event, which is now the war in Ukraine. And early on, it became a pattern with the Russians that they seemed to be bent on occupying Ukraine's working and non-working nuclear. Everybody can easily succumb to peer porn. I mean, there's an awful lot of that parading around on the internet in the form of fake news. I thought it would be useful to put up item number three, which is a very informative piece on why electrical blackouts are dangerous to Ukraine's nuclear sites and why the IAEI uh, appeared at the um, uh, senior um, ceasefire conference in Turkey a couple of days ago, demanding that the Russians who occupied Chernobyl let the uh, Ukrainian engineers back in so they can reconnect the power because Chernobyl has been cut off not only from the electrical grid, and power is required for the pumps, which is required for cooling. And we all know what happens when you don't cool nuclear reactors. It is a bad day for an awful lot of people if things get out of control. So um, I do not know as of tonight whether the Russians have acceded to the IAEA's demand. The IAEA is the International uh, uh, Atomic Energy Commission. Um, and they're kind of in charge of global monitoring of nuclear reactors and safety, et cetera. And they normally do that through uplinks uh, to the internet. Well, the Russians, in addition to severing the power when they took over Chernobyl on their way down from Belarus, they also cut 
the um, feed, the internet feed from Chernobyl to the IAEA, so they cannot monitor any of the you know hundreds of engineering parameters required to maintain safety of the uh, still functioning uh, uh, reactors. There was one reactor which caught fire and blew up in 1986. That was the one that spread radioactive material across a large section of Ukraine, Russia, and Europe at the time in the form of a radioactive cloud of material which fell out on the ground. Um, but there were three other functioning reactors I believe those have now been de- The Russians also took over far to the southeast a functioning a nuclear reactor, which provides about one quarter of Ukraine's total energy supply. In fact, nuclear reactors provide about half of Ukraine's energy. And so it's got four other major reactors in addition to Chernobyl. And the Russians appear to be methodically uh, trying to take over all those sites and, uh, that bodes, uh, I mean, it really is not a good idea for non-specialists. When they took over the other site, which uh, has an unpronounceable name in Ukrainian, um, but it is the largest nuclear reactor site in Europe, and when they took it over, they took it over in part by lobbing tank shells uh, into the structures, and you know, by the grace of God and whoever looks after fools, none of the reactors was breached. Um, but if they were breached or if there was a, uh, a meltdown because of lack of electricity for cooling, um, the experts say that it would make uh, Chernobyl look like a uh, Sunday school picnic. So I thought that would be important background for you to have as we proceed on because the reason this is relevant to tonight's discussion is that in terms of responses to our radio signals, into the dark, beginning with a muamua, and then moving on to uh, transmitting from the center of an ancient sacred observatory in southern Britain known as Stonehenge. And we uh, have our away team member who did that intrepid um, set of expeditions, and we're going to have her kind of recap, you know, what she did and how she did it, and then we're going to talk in detail about some of the responses. One of the two major things which came out of those transmissions in the recorded response in the case of Ukraine four days ahead of the invasion and in the the case of the bizarre Tonga explosion in the South Pacific two weeks before that event is we seem to be getting information out of time. We seem to be getting from our radio reception answers to pivotal geopolitical planetary questions weeks or days ahead of the actual pivotal events occurring. In the case of Tonga, two weeks before, and in the case of Ukraine, four days before. And then uh, David Sarita uh, regaled us last week during our two shows, our Saturday and Sunday shows, with new information um, predicting some other uh, potential nuclear reactor sites that the Russians are closing in on. And again, this is part of a pattern, which is why we're discussing all of this tonight, because it appears to be highly relevant. Whoever's at the other end of this phone, using the term metaphorically, appears to 
try to be giving us a heads up in terms of major world events which are in fact capable of shaping and changing our world. One of the major reasons why it's important that we continue and deepen and broaden not only the experiments, but also the analysis. And so again, I will ask, uh, which I've been asking out for several weeks, if you have any background in cryptology, in information processing, in writing computer programs, uh, we'd like to be able to automate the search through the large amount of data that we have now accumulated, because at the moment we're kind of going through it by hand and by eye and by ear, and we'll get into what that means in a minute. Um, and it's taking a lot of time and a lot of man hours that could be better spent perhaps looking uh, quicker at some of these out of time anticipatory events so we could notify certain people in positions of authority and responsibility if in fact we're giving heads up for other things that are going to occur. Be that as it may, if you look at item number four and five and six and seven, they form a set. And on January 15th of uh, this year, um, about sunset, about dusk, local time, a, a known underwater volcano a few miles away from the remote and incredibly unfamiliar to most people island of Tonga blew its top. And it began, the eruption began underwater, but quickly, you know, enveloped the surrounding neighborhood for miles and miles around as a surface event and produced a cloud material that I'm going to talk about shortly. But I want to talk about for a moment about the explosion. If you look at number five, explosions in three dimensions are spherical. We know this from a tremendous amount of high-speed photography, uh, including that of nuclear weapons. I had an old friend of mine, uh, Charlie Lykoff, who was one of the chief scientists at EG&G, which is a firm, a technical high-tech firm uh, located in the suburbs of Boston, which got the exclusive contract from the old Atomic Energy Commission back in the 1940s to develop technologies to document all of the U.S nuclear tests, the above ground and below ground nuclear tests. So Charlie developed, among other things, cameras capable of recording uh, at a frame rate exceeding a million frames per second, which literally can freeze an H-bomb flat. It can, it can give you a single image in, in focus, without light and dark, with, with complete detail. And he could do that, you know, back in the 1940s, given the uh, incredible engineering genius that he was. Anyway, when you look at those incredibly slowed down versions of thermonuclear tests, primarily in the South Pacific, explosions also are spherical, that they take place in three dimensions. Well, if you look at image number four, image number five, item six and seven, um, and you might as well throw in eight, um, of the Tonga explosion. Uh, I've added one to the list that I've been showing now for several weeks because we were given this <clears throat> two-week heads up from the ET radio transmissions that we've recorded 
of the location of the Tonga event, again, two weeks before the Tonga event erupted. And it erupted with such incredible force, the energy estimates that are based on more conventional explosions have ranged from a low end of about 18 megatons using a uh, nuclear weapons scale to a high end of over 60 megatons. The reason that the numbers are so imprecise is because the nearby uh, technology was blown away. The shock wave was recorded circling the planet three times. Fortunately, we have exquisite satellite imagery. We have satellite stereo imagery from two different uh, weather satellites positioned 20-some thousand miles above the Earth that were able to simultaneously record the surface eruption. And what you see in this series of images, items four, five, seven, and eight, is that this explosion, this event, this incredible anomaly uh, located at 20.6 degrees south latitude, which was given to us multiple times in the radio reception signals that David Sarita decoded two weeks before the event, that object, that event, that explosion, if you look at number eight, this is a new one I've added to the list of images. This is an infrared satellite that was able to measure with stereo the height of the actual cloud, which extended over almost 40 miles above the surface of the Pacific Ocean. Even more intriguing, I've done a kind of an enlarged inset of the infrared scan of the cloud ascending from the ocean surface. And as you can see, in this cloud extending 40 miles above the ocean, the cloud is not spherical, it is cubical, which means whatever it is, whatever energy was released, whatever drove material from the ocean bottom to almost 40 miles above the surface of the planet, the sea level surface of Earth, had a hyperdimensional cubical geometry because a cube in 3D is two interlocked tetrahedra. And in our next program, I'm going to show you some other examples elsewhere in the solar system of this same cubical geometry and then tell you what I think it ultimately means for understanding of ancient events all across the solar system. So whoever gave us this kind of preview two weeks before this cataclysmic event, and thank goodness it took place in the middle of nowhere, otherwise countless thousands of people would have been killed from the shock waves alone, to say nothing of the tsunami. Um, whoever did this either did it themselves and gave us a two-week window, a preview for some reason, or it was a third party apart from those who did this and the, those of us watching, mainly, mainly us. It was a third party that was aware of this was going to happen and gave us a two-week heads up, unfortunately because of the very slow uh, manual nature of our decoding at the moment which is why we need more machine technology. Uh, we did not get it in time 
to forecast and give warning, even if we'd been smart enough to understand what the numbers meant at that time to those citizens of Tonga, which really got creamed uh, by this incredibly close explosion. Fortunately, because there had been previous activity of the underwater volcano, um, a lot of the residents had evacuated. And so there was, I, I think there were two or three people on the island of Tonga itself who died uh, because of, of this event, but not the thousands that uh, occurred, you know, uh, after the um, uh, Indonesian tsunami back in, what, 2004, I believe that tsunami occurred, having nothing to do with uh, the events we've just described. Again, this was now unequivocally, based on the geometry of the after effects, a hyperdimensional physics slash technology event. And then some weeks later, we have the inexplicable um, connection to the potential reason for why maybe Putin invaded Ukraine. And for those of you who think that's a huge leap, um, let me take you to item number nine. Uh, this is a link. This was sent to me by uh, uh, Ron Gerbrun uh, earlier this week. Uh, it's a story from Wired Magazine. Um, it talks about the fact that, unbeknownst to most of us, since 1995, the Ukrainians have maintained a 24-person station called the Vernadsky Station um, in the Antarctic uh, at the tip of that long uh, peninsula of islands that extends out into the uh, uh, sea around Antarctica that kind of is aimed toward Argentina. And uh, there are 12 of the researchers who are stranded there because they literally cannot go home. Um, the fact that Wired thought it was interesting to run a story on the Ukrainians who are uh, uh, stuck there um, raised a question in my mind, well, what was the research which the Ukrainians were involved in and could it conceivably have any possible connection to Russia invading Ukraine? Now, before you think I'm totally nuts on this, just kind of, you know, follow me, okay? Um, so after Ron had sent me this link in the story, I went looking for the uh, research that the Vernadsky National Antarctic Scientific Center of Ukraine uh, is funding and is pursuing, and that is link number 10. And if you look at the link carefully, you'll see that they are involved in, along with the normal biology and looking at the ionosphere and, you know, in the pristine conditions of the South Pole, they also are involved in radio propagation studies, including ELF, which is extra low frequency radio waves that bounce around in the ionosphere, and VLF, which are very low frequency radio waves, which do the same thing. And as part of the antennas you can see sticking up there uh, from the research station, they also are equipped to receive and send VHF signals, very high frequency, 
in the mega cycle range covering 144.1 to 432 megahertz. So my question, they're at the South Pole. They are basically in a research station that was bequeathed to them when they became a separate nation in 1991 by the Brits who called it the Faraday station. And we all know who Michael Faraday was and his criticality to the development of physics and to, you know, abundant technologies, including down the line through Marconi and Tesla and others, actual radio technology. So they took over that station with that historical legacy. It turns out that this station, uh, Vernadsky, is the station which actually found through the use of an old spectrometer bequeathed to the Ukrainians by the uh, British, the ozone hole several uh, years ago and were the first to begin tracking this extraordinary hole in the 1980s, which had been caused by chlorofluorohydrocarbons and which then developed into an international treaty to get manufacturers of uh, spray cans to put other kinds of uh, propellants in the cans. And the ozone hole has been healing itself after the um, chlorine atoms that are part of the propellant gases in those 1980s spray cans was uh, basically prohibited and controlled by international treaty. So this station has a foot already in interesting history, which made its larger implications even more intriguing because I could not help but wonder, given that everyone, and this is, this is an assumption, I will put this right up front, but given that everyone who is involved in this laborious process of actually getting uh, to the South Pole must be involved in some kind of, uh, um, shall we say, high security research. Well, I'll tell you what, let me take a break here and let me begin or rather finish the rest of the story as Paul Harvey said on the other side of the break. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globaloni's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. 
because at that point you're not dealing with a currency you're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls and if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers that's not a system you want to go into you look at the west and more importantly if you look at what some people call the anglosphere the, the western powers that are english speaking the united kingdom canada united states and so on i do think it's the case there they're using a health crisis really to drive a a political agenda and the health crisis itself is largely blown way way out of proportion to what's actually the case if you look at what mr globalone is up to they are recreating slavery and the the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you it's not going to go away overnight but there are already uh i think some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice this is joseph p farrell and for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear tune in to the other side of the news Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, March 12th, 2022. The music you're listening to is by a Ukrainian composer, Volodymyr Bayastrykov, written in 1982. It's called, very appropriately for what we're going to talk about tonight, Alice Through the Looking Glass. And I was sent this, again, uh, Ron is the culprit. And I played some of it, and I thought, oh, this is kind of intriguing. And we'll dip into it from time to time during the, uh, during the breaks uh, at the top and bottom of the hour, because I think it's important that we kind of look at what contemporary Ukrainian culture is reflecting, not the least of which, getting back to the South Pole, is it possible that because part of, a major part of their research is focused on 
radio signals and transmission capability from VHF to ELF in the Earth's ionosphere, is it possible the Ukrainians picked up incredibly interesting and anomalous radio signatures from the Tonga event in the South Pacific on January 15th? Total speculation, I totally admit. Now, the good news is we may be able to find out because it turns out according to the Wired magazine article, which is item number nine, it turns out that the uh, uh, Ukrainian station has a live internet link. So I'm going to try to get an actual uh, interview with one of the scientists um, there at the Ukrainian uh, research station and kind of try to see what they were up to and what they were looking at at the time of the Tonga event. The other thing which is so interesting, and that gets back to what we've been doing since December 4th, given that they are literally monitoring uh, high and very low frequency radio transmissions, is it possible that in addition to our network of independent researchers who have been listening to and recording the answers to our specifically Oumuamua transmissions beginning back on December 4th, is it possible the Ukrainians picked up those radio signals, looked at them, understood that the chirps were totally abnormal compared to anything else that they had monitored for you know years before, began recording them, began doing the same kind of thing that we're doing, which is attempting to decode them and in fact came up with some of the same answers that we have. Now again, these two ideas, which go together, are at the moment totally speculative, except for the fact that of all the nations now involved with a major war with Russia, it happens to be Ukraine, Uh, And the Ukrainian Antarctic Research Center, which is located in Kyiv, and uh, again, you know, kind of hauling out of the uh, woodwork and dusting off an old saying from George Norrie, there are no such things as coincidences. Well, there are coincidences, but in this case, there's a little more here that I'd like to probe into. Last but not least, remember back, and this is item number 11. Remember back in, um, 19, in, in 2017, where suddenly the Russian Baltic fleet announced it was going to be sending the fleet to the Antarctic under the direct order of President Putin. And they did. And there were all kinds of rumors. Now, when I went looking for the subsequent reports and news stories and after effects and all this of sending, you know, the Russian Baltic fleet to, you know, literally more than halfway around the world to the Antarctic, to the bottom of the world, to the South Pole. Nothing is available except for the original uh, Kremlin announcement from 2017 regarding their mission, where they stopped, who they met with, how they were welcomed, where they wound up. When they got back, nothing. It's all 
disappeared. Again, these are dots. I have no idea whether they're actually solidly connected, but the one thing that I find very intriguing is we know now from overwhelming evidence, including evidence that uh, I've unearthed myself, that the ancient continent of Antarctica is littered with extraordinarily old, 30,000 years if it's a day, ancient high-tech stuff. Given that the radio communicators at the other end of our transmissions have been pointing us to ancient sacred terrestrial sites in our own relatively recent few thousand year old history like when we transmitted the the signals to the moon what we got back was a direct e6 uh, aubrey circle connection to stonehenge which is why we focused on the next phase of the experiments uh, dealing with transmissions from acred uh, ancient sacred sites which of course is uh, all circumstantial until and i'm going to try to really try to do it this week maybe we get hold of someone at the ukrainian station at the south pole because they can't leave and there's not much else they can do maybe they will talk to us and we might find out more by a direct interview with um whoever may have been part of this logic chain for real and i know that one of our panelists says that every major country has a research base in antarctica yeah and i bet they're all quietly signees to an nda which basically says under pain of god knows what you will never reveal what we're all really doing down here remember back in the uh, 1960s the antarctic was declared off limits to any government or private development commercial exploitation digging for uranium or or you know drilling for oil or mining for minerals it became a a you know island unto itself and i've always wondered why given that every other part of the planet is open to exploration including the arctic what made the antarctic different well you can start with the diaries of uh, uh, admiral Byrd and go from there but there's definitely extraordinarily weird and exotic and incredibly ancient high technology in the antarctic um, we could spend and we've spent many, many programs detailing some of that. And the question then is, does anybody get, except for tourists kept carefully at the very edges of the continent, does anybody ever get into the Antarctic who doesn't go through such elaborate hoops of legal and political uh, vetting such that everybody who's there probably knows what's really down there and they just can't for a whole bunch of reasons, including legal, say anything about it. And so did the Ukrainians make the mistake of telling someone what they'd heard? And is that part of the reason why this whole gambit in Eastern Europe is now uh, being laid out in such tragedy before us? I know it's all speculation. But as Einstein once said, all good science begins in speculation. So let me get to our, our guest tonight, okay? Um, Maria, Maria Wheatley, 
is our uh, first uh, panelist we're going to bring on. She's a second-generation dowser taught by European master dowsers and her late father and Chinese geomancer. She is a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and ancient stone circles. She's an accomplished author with many books on sacred sites and dowsing, and I'm going to have her plug uh, uh, tonight her latest book, which I believe is almost ready to be published. In 2015, she made a major discovery. In the Neolithic period, there was a royal priesthood of long-skulled, elongated people that made Stonehenge their spiritual capital. Across Europe and the British Isles, this enigmatic, long-lost civilization designed elongated-shaped monuments to, in Maria's model, reflect their skull shape. During the early Bronze Age, which came some thousand or so years later, the long-skulled people were murdered by round-skulled people who designed round stone circles and created round barrows for the departed, reflecting, in Maria's model, the shape of their skulls. She tracked down the long, elongated skull of the High Queen of Stonehenge and many others in ancient archives there in Britain to reveal the secret history of Stonehenge, which I think, and she'll correct me momentarily, is the title of her impending book. Maria, welcome back to the other side of midnight, the edge of forever, and God knows what else. Thank you for having me again. So what is the title of the new book that's about to be born? Yes, yeah, should be out in a few months. It's A Secret History of Stonehenge. Ah, so, so that is the title. Okay. Well, I certainly hope I get a copy <clears throat> because I, I can't wait to read all the cool stuff you've been quietly working on. For those who are new to the program, kind of describe how you got into becoming an away team, an um, explorer not, who took this 21st century cutting-edge ET communication into one of the most famous of the ancient stone circles? Yes. Well, well, Stonehenge is the most famous stone circle in the world because even though there's lots of named places after it and monuments like it built afterwards, there is nothing like Stonehenge. It, It stands unique in the British Isles and in the world. It's iconic. I got involved in the project really after you discovered the number 56 with David Sarida, which are the 56 Aubrey holes that used to originally hold 56 highly polished blue stones with an altar stone in the middle and the heel stones on the outside. So that's how I got involved in that and Stonehenge became apparent that it should be a place that is intricately connected with this project. Well, I guess primarily because if you're talking to aliens, I hate that term because we don't know who we're talking to, but in their major transmissions, they point you toward an ancient, incredibly important terrestrial monument, which is, it used to be an observatory that was uh, figured out back in the 1950s. And there's a lot of archaeologists who have added to that database. Uh, There's a recent group that I think has now tracked the idea that Stonehenge could have been a solar calendar. So the astronomical linkage of Stonehenge was quite obvious, but the idea that whoever we're talking to in these ET transmissions says, look at Stonehenge, to me and to a couple of other people like John Womack, was like, well, ah, duh, 
maybe, maybe we should transmit from Stonehenge and see what happened. So then we had to look around and find the appropriate victim, uh, I mean, explorer, <clears throat> and that was you. Hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I mean, when we look at Stonehenge today, we're looking at different phases. So i just like to point out that Stonehenge, how we're all familiar with it, is, is phase four. That's what we're looking at, the final phase of Stonehenge. But Stonehenge originally uh, was surrounded by a very tall, um, between six feet and ten feet, chalk wall. So you wouldn't have been able to see Stonehenge today. We can glance, glance at it, but it was a very concealed area. And even though it's called a henge, Stonehenge, it isn't a henge at all, because a henge means a ditch on the inside and a bank on the outside. And Stonehenge stands unique, again, in the British Isles and in the world, because it has the bank on the inside and the ditch on the outside, oh, and then what? another bank. Now that's interesting. Do we have any idea... <clears throat> or since you're writing a book called Secrets, do you have any idea why the geometry was reversed and what the purpose of the bank Yes, I mean, everything was highly polished. We're seeing things after four and a half thousand years, if we use orthodox dating, of erosion. So the stones look very grey and the henge bank is now just a bump in the ground because it got plowed out and it's covered in grass. So originally it would have been highly polished chalk. We know that through excavations done in 1954 by Professor Richard Atkinson and Professor Stuart Piggott. Uh, I propose that the bank was on the outside because in particular phases of the moon, uh, when it's at its most southerly, What's when it's very low on the horizon, for example, and we, we know that the greater Trilithon was aligned to the midwinter sunset in its lower window, but also it was aligned to the minor southern moon set. And when the moon is that, is that low on the horizon line, I think it could have caused part of the Henge Bank, which is uh, on, like I said, on the inside and not the outside, to be in part illuminated. So you would have the, the sun, the moonlight rather, being brought down oh, to the Henge so, Bank. So you'd have like a glowing horizon, so you'd clearly yes. see a, a horizon demarcating the lower from the upper, the earthly, from the celestial. Yes, I mean, uh, I've worked with a mathematician and we've got a good model for, for the book. So I think that, that you could literally bring the moon to, to, the, to, the, to the ground. And also with the heel stone. The heel stone stands just outside of Stonehenge. It's called an outlier. Uh, and it's, it's an undressed, it's not worked, it's not made into a lozenger shape like all of the stones at Stonehenge have been dressed, that's made into a lozenger shape. Originally, the heel stone was surrounded by a white chalk circle called an enclosure. So imagine round the heel stone you have this beautiful white arena that also reflects uh, and, and symbolizes the moon itself. So again, you're looking at something so, so ruinous. So when you look at the heel stone today, it just stands in grass. But in the Neolithic era of phase one of uh, Stonehenge, five and a half thousand years ago, orthodox dating, it, it stood in a chalk <laughs> circle. It would have looked supreme and very beautiful. Hmm. I have another question. As you know, I've been interested in the energetics 
of these monuments for some time. Robin and I were, were there at Stonehenge in 2011, and I was able to measure with the Accutron really fascinating changes in the inertia of the tuning fork that's the heart of the Accutron watch. And so something about the energetics literally changes the basic properties of matter uh, and mass and inertia. And, you know, I, I got stunning readings. Um, curiously enough, when I went 90 degrees around to, to be over by the heelstone you just were talking about, I got nothing with total background. So that alignment was not energetic, but 90 degrees to that alignment uh, on that little path that they confine you to. Um, I got amazing changes in the frequency of the Accutron, which had a normal beat frequency of the tuning fork going back and forth 360 times per second. It went up almost to 900. Now, for the tuning fork to advance that much, to beat that much faster, the mass had to go down by a factor of three, because 360 is almost one-third of uh, 900. So it's about a one-to-third what something about Stonehenge, the energetics, was changing the basic mass structure of a vibrating tuning fork like I've seen at other sacred sites. But this was really at the upper end of the range that I've seen. So my next question is, is there anything different since you as a dowser can sense these energetics and don't seem to need a lot of technology to do it? Is there anything different in the energetics of putting the bank on the inside of the ditch as opposed to the bank on the outside of the ditch around these stone circles? Yes. Uh, when we have a look at what's below the ground uh, and look at the energetics there, for example, Stonehenge stands at the meeting point of two massive aquifers. And when in, in water divine, in esoteric water divine in law, when you have these meeting points of these two aquifers, it, ge it generates a high amount of electromagnetic energy. But the surface pattern that you can detect in Dowson is a concentric circle after concentric circle after concentric circle. That's how you would know that that is the meeting point of uh, two aquifers with surface pattern. And that surface pattern of, that, uh, of one of those round concentric circles is the Henge Bank is precisely aligned upon that. So it reflects a waterscape but below, below the ground. And it, it is a, a kind of meeting point of not just uh, underground water, but near enough, all of the different types of earth energies that you can have are present there. That's what makes Stonehenge unique. You can have a monument, uh, just uh, say a stone circle that has uh, earth currents, uh, lays, uh, ley lines, and, and things like that. But when you get a capital, a spiritual capital, you have layers and layers of different types of uh, energy, and Stonehenge has that. So if other stone circles can be considered kind of parish churches in, in Britain, would Stonehenge be kind of at the level of a cathedral? Yes, it, it, cert it certainly is, because it's got all of the criteria for to generate a lot of energy. So with, with some uh, ancient sites like Stonehenge, 
it's almost like it's the power station and the the other stone circles that, that receive some of uh, its energy being transmitted along uh, lays and especially earth currents we now know uh, they are like the substations so you so you can get a really big pump out as it were of, of energies and the only time those energies stop or become slightly weaker is at the moment of an eclipse which we've discussed on oh. this program before so when you get an eclipse and that's why the 56 blue stones were eclipse predictor model by not only just Gerald Hawkins but Sir Fred Hoyle they said it was a, an eclipse predictor because the earth energies go really quiet and you can detect nothing in the ground and then just after the eclipse it reboots up so Stonehenge was a warning system for that and then the reboot afterwards would have been immense coming out of Stonehenge well when we got Really surprisingly, the 56 Aubrey holes in our uh, lunar bounce uh, experiments as part of the Oumuamua sequence back last year. I mean, to me, it was kind of like, oh, of course. Because if someone was trying to talk to us about our own ancient and largely suppressed history, which goes back a lot longer than the Neolithic on this planet based on a whole bunch of evidence, um, it was kind of logical that whoever we were talking to would point us toward these megalithic ancient transmission nodes on what I, you know, kind of jokingly said the other day was really the old boy network because these ancient sites are connected by these ley lines and earth currents. And the model is that they talk to each other. So the idea that occurred to me and occurred to John and a couple other people was, what if we put someone in Stonehenge with a current 22nd century technology and we're able to somehow energize, we're somehow able to trigger the amplification process of Stonehenge that I measured and so it would communicate through the old boy network to the other places on the ancient network so that's when you said, me, sir, can I do and do it? <laughs> and you did an incredible job. <laughs> so talk about your first effort on February 4th to get to Stonehenge and to actually, um, uh, you know, make this all work. And I have to say, you're going to have to do it after the break because we are literally uh, at the uh, uh, bottom of the hour. I'm, Bob, no, we're at the top of the hour. I'll get my signs straight here eventually. So let's, uh, let's take another listen to our Ukrainian artist this morning. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Alice Through the Looking Glass, 
written in 1982 by Voldemir Bytrieskov, a Ukrainian composer. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight, here from the land of enchantment. Um, I'm going to let's see what I'm going to do here. I'm going to go back to Maria, and we're going to talk about what she did in the um, lead-up to some of the most remarkable responses we've been getting, including those which appear to be predictive. So, Maria? What did you do to get ready for the 4th of February, which was your first foray with this experiment into the center of the monument? Yes, on February the 4th, uh, early in the morning, I arranged for private access to enter the heart of Stonehenge because normally the public, they just walk around the outside of Stonehenge, which is called public access. So I had private access to the, to the heart of the monument. And we, I was with a, a friend. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible weather. It was blowing a gale. It was freezing cold with driving ice rain. It was, and, you, and for listeners, Stonehenge is on elevated ground. It's on what's called the Salisbury Plain. So it's quite, it has its own weather system, the Salisbury Plain. So where I am, about sort of 15 miles to the north of Stonehenge, it could be quite warm you go to Stonehenge and it's always about a a degree or two degrees cooler than anywhere else so it Mm. has its own unique weather system wow on high on high chalk ground uh, which contains on the Salisbury Plain 2,500 monuments alone 2,000 of which are on the military of defense's land so it's in a unique and unique area. So I was at, right at the heart of uh, Stonehenge and began to uh, transmit and then receive. Uh, the, the, 
the batteries drained very, very quickly when I was in close proximity to one of, uh, one of the lays because I wanted to see if that had an effect uh, on transmission, not necessarily the batteries uh, draining, but th that occurred uh, uh, as well. So there, there was a quite of a, a series of uh, events there that were quite prominent, plus uh, my watcher at the time, I think, on that, that uh, uh, time as well lost us uh, quite a few minutes, about 15 minutes uh, in all. But it was a, quite a powerful day at Stonehenge, where I've been interacting with the monument now for over 30 years of my life. I know when it's active and it can be quite passive at times Stonehenge it's not always you know at its high um, resonance so to speak but on that day it was extraordinarily uh, powerful the, the whole monument seemed to be resonating well, talk, uh, energy talk about so the it was day on one because of the active days talk about the day because you didn't pick February 4th just kind of out of a out of out of a hat there's a reason why that day was selected Well, February, February the 4th? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, we have to remind me of that then, Richard. Isn't that one of those sacred feast days? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, it's uh, in bulk. That's right. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, I forgot about that. Yes, it was uh, in bulk. In bulk's a very sacred feminine day in the eightfold uh, Druid calendar, Celtic calendar year. So it has eight points where the sun is at a significant angle on the ecliptic belt. And the in bulk is when the sun is at precisely 15 degrees of Aquarius, astrologically speaking, and it's called a cross-quarter day, sacred to the goddess Breed, or Bridget, as she was Christianized too, um, at a much later date. And the Christianized version of in bulk is called uh, Candlemas. It's a time when the Christians would light candles, but it's really significant of the sun is, is the first day of spring calendar. And it's a day when it's said that the veil between this world and the next grows thin. Although as many Druids over the past 15 years would tell you, the veil has been growing thinner for quite some time between this world and the next anyway, especially around uh, the, the ancient sites of this landscape and uh, others besides. So in bulk it was and is a very sacred uh, date in the, in the calendar and it's commonly uh, celebrated on the first of the month but that's a kind of popular culture, modern culture of neo-paganism whereas we timed it exact to the 15 degrees. So you go online and it would tell you it's the first of February uh, in bulk, but, but it isn't. It has to be astrologically timed. So that was another high resonance uh, feature of that day. And I think that was uh, strongly reflected in the transmission signals as well, because they were different uh, when I went back slightly outside of the monument on the 20th of February. Hmm. So you picked a date that was energetic in the physics model. I would say that was not accidental. That was, you know, kind of one is the cause of the other. The monument reflects that high energy. The radio signals that you received after you've done your transmissions uh, reflected that. And then this completely unexpected two things that happened. One is when you, you know, went to one of these ley lines that is kind of crisscrossing the, the, the center of Stonehenge, your batteries just quit. They just drained like almost instantly. And then you noticed after you left that your watch, which I guess is a quartz uh, you know, wristwatch, it had lost 
15 minutes? That That's right. I mean, one of the most powerful lays at Stonehenge and elsewhere besides are the north-south flowing lines. They, they're exceptionally powerful. Um, and it's always reflected in ancient law in the British Isles. The judge always sits in the north. A gypsy would always read the cards in the north. It's called the seat of the power. And even in a much later Christian churches, the north door is always blocked off in medieval churches because the pagans used to meet in the north you do all of your really powerful sacred rites uh, in, in that quadrant and yes and so that's the lay was coming in from the north south and, and it's, uh, it's very 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 powerful it's associated with the planets and associated uh, with, uh, with the moon uh, as well so that was the point where I had uh, the drainage and I think it was that line that probably influenced my watch as well, which has worked incidentally uh, fine ever since. It has not lost a minute uh, mm. since that time, uh, and I, I've even got it on now, and it's it's a perfect a perfect watch that I've had for for quite some time as well. People have a lot of personal experiences. They can get very subjective at ancient sites and experience a lot of things. I I have had numerous experiences, subjective experiences, and spiritual. Uh, experiences at Stonehenge but I also can uh, when I'm in the pyramids as well I can go into my own uh, space so I don't get overwhelmed with the energies around me because I've been interacting with them for so long so I was actually in my own modality at that point rather than being in the spiritual experience people can get lost in that uh, <laughs> as well especially in, in the in the king's chamber I can assure you I've I've, I've seen it uh, for hand but I just like to point out that phase one of Stonehenge were uh, linked into the Neolithic people by orthodox dating but, but what I do know is that they had long skulls and they were the long skulled people that developed that phase of Stonehenge uh, in its totality so I think there's a link to the long skulled people with the 56 blue stones uh, as well so I think it's uh, reflecting on a long lost civilization as much as us today. Hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward in the coming couple of weeks, maybe being able to talk to you and Brian Forster, who has been researching these elongated skull people in Peru. And he, I think he's even got DNA analysis. And that's going to be a really interesting conversation. And when we get that finalized, obviously, we will tell the audience. OK, so let's go ahead from the 4th of February to the next foray you took back into the monument, which was on the 20th. And because of the weather and because of the, the British hurricane, I mean, there were, you know, almost 100 mile an hour winds. You couldn't get anybody to go with you. You were in a car. You could get within a couple of hundred feet and you did your measurements and transmissions from inside a car parked very close to where I had done my own Accutron measurements uh, back in 2011 what how, how did that wind up how did you wind up there Yes, on the 20th, again, it was just really inclement weather. It was blowing a gale. Trees were coming down, actually. And, wow. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it, it was quite, you know, quite something. There was a lot of debris around twigs, uh, you, you know, the sort, sort of thing. And I first went to what's called uh, Rollerstone Camp, 
that's again, you know, as I've always pointed out, Stonehenge is surrounded by military. If you want to go quite close, you can't avoid a military camp. You either go to Lark Hill, Bulford, or this was uh, was Rolleston. And that day, you have what's called the red flags. You have a big pole all across the Salisbury Plain, and if it's a red flag that is flying, you can't turn in that direction. So you you have to go with where the flags tell you to go because they're using live animation. Uh, and just yesterday, there was they're using live ammo at the moment on Salisbury Plain. What? I live, like I said, about 15 miles north and my house was booming so i'm in Mol a place called marlborough a 12th century market town it's a delight and in the background all i'm hearing is like thunder they're really gearing up to something what if some idiot made a miscalculation on the targeting and they wound up hitting stonehenge with an artillery shell They've only ever made one mistake, in all fairness, to the military, and that was when uh, a bomb went five miles in the wrong direction and um, blew up part of a road. Oh, but the, you, if you're driving around the Salisbury Plain, they're going over your head. Oh. That's what's happening. I mean, it's, it, is, it is quite you know, unique, that area. And in the 1930s, when we look back to the First World War eras and heading towards the Second World War, Stonehenge was surrounded by a military camp. Check out the old photographs. You've got military uh, places by it. And at one time, they were thinking about uprooting Stonehenge, the military, and putting it somewhere what? else. But there was an uproar. Holy yes, there was an uproar cow. because the British people would not have that. you know, And they won't even have the tunnel today. You've got people in caravans parked outside of Stonehenge within about a mile of the monument. They're ready to protest uh, on any tunnel building. That will cause uh, what we call a ruckus uh, if, uh, if that gets the, if that gets the go-ahead because it would ruin the, the landscape of Stonehenge, uh, we feel. Um, but, but nonetheless, going back to the uh, February the, the 20th, it was awful weather. I was at a Rollerstone camp. The red flag was flying. I did a transmission from there. The, the military uh, personnel came out and asked me to move on. So clearly they were, you know, ready to move tanks or something like that. So I had to then move on. And I went up to a trackway off the A303, which is the main road in front of Stonehenge to the south. And I went up a trackway to be right opposite uh, Trilathon 57 and 58, which is where you got your uh, recording. Uh, that fell down in the 18th century, that Trilathon. And then it got reset by Professor uh, Atkinson with crane and chains because obviously they didn't have the ancient technology to raise the lintels uh, and that got raised up so at one time it did crash down 90 tons of stone crashed down and it sounded like an earthquake it was heard in the next town called Amesbury further on down the line because a lot of people think the stones are in the ground a long way at Stonehenge one is one's eight feet down but the others uh, are in chalk bedrock and they're only about two to three feet down. So the sheer 
our engineering skill of putting those stones into the chalk bedrock is a legacy of our ancient ancestors' skills. And so I was at that point where I was again doing a, a transmission and I was recording it all the while on another radio receiver device that was on constant record. So I think it was, uh, and then there was no battery drainage at that time. And even though it was blowing a gale, the background uh, psychic frequency seemed to be a lot calmer. It was much, much calmer, energetically speaking, than on the fourth. Hmm. Which is kind of confirmation that the fourth was really an amazing hyperdimensional alignment day, and the twentieth was kind of more normal. Yes. Yes. So I think anything that was received elsewhere is on that kind of more gentle frequency. I'd like to point out that on one of the power days. Okay, well, I want to go now to Dennis because Dennis Stone was one of our volunteer um, away team uh, members, part of the network that we kind of set out all across, you know, the the, uh, North American continent. We had participants in Florida. We had participants here in New Mexico. We had participants outside Washington. We had people in British Columbia. uh, And and we had someone in Upper New York State, uh, your friend Ra, who was on last weekend, and we also had Dennis Stone. Now, Dennis is unique in that he is president of something called America's Stonehenge. He's a graduate of Daniel Webster College with a degree in aviation management and was a full-time commercial airline pilot for over 35 years before he retired uh, in 2016. America's Stonehenge was opened to the public in 1958 by Dennis's father, Robert Stone, and Dennis has been involved with America's Stonehenge for most of his adult life. In fact, even in, in, when he was a child, <clears throat> has always had a fascinating with archaeology and archaeoastronomy. And when I proposed to him that he take one of these radios and do a listening experiment at America's Stonehenge, um, well, why don't I bring Dennis on and he will tell you what he, what he heard and what he found. Dennis? Well, good evening, uh, Richard. Thank you for having me on again. Well, you're in the middle of the kind of catbird seat there when it comes to an incredibly interestingly archaic and ancient stone site. It covers over 110 acres. You've had all kinds of science done for several decades, which have pushed the date of it back, you know, almost 10,000 years, at least 7,000. And what's really interesting is that when Maria and you got together many years ago, I guess you guys figured out that there's a ley line connection, kind of this old, old, old boy, uh, hyperdimensional network of uh, energetic you know, uh, alignments between the original Stonehenge in Britain and your version, which is there in uh, uh, lower New Hampshire in, in the uh, North American continent. Talk about that connection Talk about, I think it was your nephew who figured out some other alignments, and then talk about uh, uh, what you got on the morning of the 20th. Okay, yes. Um, the alignment that you're talking about, and Maria is really the expert in this area, um, it was found actually by my son, Kelsey, and Kelsey is turning 33 on Monday, and uh, he did it during a uh, break while he was in college. He was just using Google Earth, and he was looking at our astronomical alignments. And 
just to let the audience know, we have about 57 alignments for the sun, moon, and stars that we've determined over the years since 1965 when we began that research. Um, as it turns out, my son was looking at the summer solstice sunrise to the northeast, and he went along that line, and he went out through New Hampshire into Maine, and he continued past Nova Scotia just for kicks. And what he was looking for basically is other northeast sites that might be aligned with this particular alignment. And they were working on this back in the 1970s, well before Google Earth, and people had to actually go out and uh, get permission to go on land or trespass. They were looking at hills around here where there are cons and other structures uh, to see if there was any kind of alignment, you know, with our various astronomical alignments. And there, and there were, but it was very, very slow work in the 1970s and 80s. And with Google Earth, it made it much easier. What he did is he took that line, he just continued across the Atlantic Ocean for kicks. And it ended up in uh, towards kind of southern England. And he had already been to Stonehenge a few times as a kid and a little, when he was a little bit older. And um, as he changed the scale of the map, he kept blowing it up. And he noticed it was um, very close to Stonehenge, what he recalled. And as he kept changing the scale, all of a sudden Stonehenge showed up. And that line went right through one of the trilithons at Stonehenge, oh you know, much to his surprise. <laughs> but uh, Maria says you need, I think, five other points, I think, to make a ley line. Uh, us Americans, we don't have the latest on ley lines, I think. She said we need to catch up a bit. But she called it, I think, a topical. I think she used that term, topical alignment. But if you stand at our summer solstice and you had Superman vision and you watch the sunrise on June 20th to 21st in the morning, uh, you're standing at what was a Karn. It was one of the alignment centers, which is now unfortunately missing. But we have photographs and diagrams of it. There's also a stone circle. It's an ellipse, actually an elliptical stone circle with a stone in the center. And when you stand there, it serves as a backsite. The monolith you're looking at is pretty cool. It's asymmetrically shaped. It, it, a lot of our alignments look like big arrowheads, some of them up to about 19, 10 feet tall. But this one here actually has got a slope to it. And we always wondered why back in the 70s when we began clearing out the trees so you could see the horizon. And once we did that, we're looking about three to four miles distance, and there's a hill with a notch on it. And this stone was actually shaped to fit that notch. And in Europe, they referred to some of these hilltops with notches, peaks, or valleys that you align with, come horizon features. And so we believe that they actually shaped that stone to fit that notch, which is, again, about a little over three miles away. So you're standing there looking at the stone, you're looking at the notch, and then in the morning you'll be watching the sun rise, and it's 90 degrees to the slope of that stone in that notch. And if your eyes could see around the earth, you'd end up <laughs> looking at stone in along that alignment. Yeah. So it's actually something like sun, Chelsea, and it was 10 years ago this year. I believe it was in April, so it would be next month that he discovered that. <laughs> wow. Okay, so the morning of the 20th, uh, I believe it was really weird weather in New England as well. Kind of described <laughs> step by step, and if we stand at the bottom of the hour, we'll just continue it on the other side of the break. Talk about how difficult it was for you to get readings. Yeah, we had some difficulties. Uh, my daughter in law, who went to school for uh, computers, actually got the computer set up with the uh, transceiver, and we had an app on the computer, and she was having some difficulties the day before in preparation for this. She finally resolved it. She wrote out a 10-step uh, process for me, or uh, steps to take to actually make it work. So I took the computer home uh, that night before, and I was practicing with it. 
And as soon as I got it dotted up about maybe eight or nine o'clock at night to practice with it, all of a sudden the computer started flicking and it blinked on and off rapidly. And so I booted it again, tried it again, and I did it several times. And I think around midnight, I stopped and I sent you a message saying, I'm having some technical difficulties. Hopefully tomorrow we can resolve them. Um, I tried to get a hold of my daughter-in-law the next morning, but she was gone, unfortunately. So I did take the uh, transceiver up to the main site. And again, you mentioned 110-acre site. In the middle is a main site, about one-acre stone structures. And some of the structures, you can actually walk right into them. Uh, one of them is called the Oracle Chamber. And it's about 30 feet long, and it has an east wing that's about 20 feet long. It's a very sophisticated chamber with closets. It has seats, stone seats in it. it. has two underground drains. It has carvings. So I sat it. I sat there with the transceiver, and I was um, in contact with Maria. So when she was doing 144.1, I set it to that, and I just left it there. And that's always seems to be a very quiet frequency. So I didn't really get anything, but I videotaped it. And again, my computer was broken. I couldn't bring it up there. I drove up on my ATV, you know, and I brought what I had with me up there. And it was about 15 degrees out. The wind mm. was blowing. And I think the wind was five degrees. So at about 10 minutes, my hands actually froze up. And then my brain began to freeze. <laughs> God. But the radio was quiet. And then when Marie um, sent out a message that she was going to uh, one, uh, sorry, 432.000, I switched it over. And I think Ra was doing the same thing at North Salem, New York. With this, um, it kind of, we used to call it a dolmen, but it's called Balanced Rock. And uh, he was doing the same thing. So I was staying in touch with them, kind of. I did get some chirps. And, and what I did is, there were only a few chirps, and I recorded them with my cell phone. And then I sent them in a WAV file uh, to... Uh, uh, let's see, I sent them to Keith, I think. Yes, and Keith, yes. I think, has that. Um, we now have the computer fixed. Uh, we had a gentleman who likes your show from Pennsylvania visiting us. And he was great at computers. I mentioned your show. He was so excited. And I said, we got these problems. He was able to work with my daughter-in-law. And they both uh, they, they actually did some upgrades on the uh, hard drive, I guess. And it's, I asked my daughter-in-law tonight at a birthday party for my son two days early. I said, is it fixed? She goes, yes, it's fixed right now. So I'm hoping whenever we do the next thing with Maria, we'll have it up and ready and we can get better data for you. Well, given that we may be doing something in a couple, three weeks, and it will be probably more into spring, uh, it may not be wind chill of, you know, five degrees. But one of the really cool things that we've now confirmed uh, based on my measurements, when Robin and I went to Chichen Itza, we discovered, I discovered that these these sacred sites have a huge field of influence around them, uh, extending miles out in radius all around. So Maria confirmed that by what she did on the 20th because because of the, you know, various reasons she couldn't get into the center of the site, you know, like she did on the 4th. So she did her listening and transmissions from a couple of hundred feet from outside and she got amazing results. So I think the next time that you wind up doing this, you'll probably be able to do it from the comfort of your own den. Cause I believe your house is located like within a few hundred feet of the center of America's Stonehenge. Yeah, we're about 800, uh, eight or 900 feet. We're actually in the summer solstice sunset alignment. And we built the house back in 86 and we bought the property, you know, special because it was abutting the property. You know, we did that intentionally. And so we're pretty close to the 
to the site. So yeah, about maybe about eight, about eight or nine hundred feet from it. Okay. Do you know whether the house is on a ley line? And Maria, please come in here and and help because we now know, based on her experience uh, at Stonehenge and mine at Coral Castle many years before, that the energies somehow are really not good for batteries and electronics. So you want to avoid. Remember how they used, used to say, you know, step on a crack, break your mother's back. You don't want to be on a ley line when you're trying to do these measurements. We do have that over no, the years. I mean, we have professional film. We've had battery problems up there with the film crews and drones and even GPS uh, for drones to orientate themselves. We've had, but mostly battery problems. Audio people are up there, like my battery's dead. You know, they put another battery in, dead for different TV shows local and even history channel stuff. So uh, maybe they're on the ley line when that happens, you know, but that's one thing that comes up quite a bit up there. Maria, is there any kind of a map? Yes, because, this is because Qi, as the ancient Chinese, they were the first to document leis. They called them dragon lines. Uh, in 2200 BC, they documented it uh, to their credit. And they noticed that Qi uh, travels far too fast on a straight line because they're transmitting from the major sites to the miners. And so that's why all of the... Um, buildings in China reflect the need for qi to flow slowly and so they have those horseshoe shaped uh, rooftops. They don't have flat rooftops like the West. That's to allow the qi to slow down. So that's, uh, ah. that's you know, what one way. So no, it's not good to live on, on a lay. Okay, hold on, uh, hold on. long-term exposure is not good. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning so far, we have many standing in the wings. I'm kind of trying to bring them on when their area of expertise becomes relevant. Uh, We've got Maria Wheatley with us, and we've got Dennis Stone. And when we come back, we're going to play uh, a bit of um, Dennis's recordings, and then we're going to bring on our experts in analysis, John Womack, Thomas uh, Mathers, and I don't think David's with us tonight, but we have our generalist, Ron Gerbron. He's with us. And so you're going to get not only the first-person story of acquiring the data, you're going to get what we figured out so far when we return. We're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. 
talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight here on the land of enchantment from the land of enchantment. My name is Richard C. Hogan. My guest this morning so far, Maria Wheatley, who's been our intrepid explorer taking the handheld Balfang radio into the center and then on the periphery of Stonehenge twice, transmitting coded signals that were composed by one of our panelists this morning. And we're going to bring him on momentarily. And then listening, in her recording, she was able to continuously record for more than two hours. And the variations from those recordings are really amazing to not only look at uh, with spectrometers and graphs and you know, frequency displays, but to literally listen to. And some of our analysts do that because they just happen to be Emmy Award-winning producers and musicians, and they uh, have uh, an expertise in music that far exceeds mine, and they can hear things that uh, I, uh, when I listen, I, I don't readily hear the same thing. So I am so glad that uh, we have people at the cutting edge who can kind of follow up with the uh, hearing, the audio part, with uh, forensic analysis, with actual technology. So uh, I'll tell you what, uh, Dennis, let me go back to your... Uh, file and bring up what you recorded at 4.32. I haven't had a chance to preview this, but this is what you got. Um, And what you did is you took your cell phone and just did what David has done in the beginning, which is to video the radio and the speaker and the little indicator lights that show when you're getting a signal, right? That's correct. That's exactly what I did. Okay. So let's see what we got here. So I'm on 432.000, and uh, it's chirping infrequently. There it goes again. Um, it's doing something uh, more than 144.1, which really didn't do anything at all. So it's a little more active at the moment, but it's been like quiet for like several minutes of nothing. Uh, then there was a chirp before that, and then several minutes of nothing, and then a chirp. So it just now it acted up just a little bit more. Again, it's in a we're in kind of the center of what we call the oracle chamber, one of the five closets. The rock right there is part of the rock that I'm sitting on opposite. There's a seat built into the into the bedrock. It can hold several people. No metal tool markings. This is the east-west part of the structure. The ceiling here is core build. It kind of steps down uh, towards the east. And you can see one of the other beautiful little closets. There's actually one hiding to the right of it. Down by letter I, there's a 45-foot underground drain to keep this thing dry. You can see a little bit of ice in the ground. And a couple more closets. Uh, it's kind of a sophisticated structure. 
uh, up there, top and center, is what we call the speaking key that goes out to the oracle chamber. I'm staying at an angle, so it's kind of blocked by the angle of the stones there, but below it's an eight-foot bed with a little window. The entrance to the structure, which at one time had roof slabs over there, we have photographs from the 1920s. If you go to the north, and this is orientated true north, south, and there's a chimney flue there. And this part of the structure is just under 30 feet long. I'm standing here, and the roof is well above me all. Very large roof slabs. Structure uh, doesn't leak. There is some ice in the floor because it flows in here. Some cutouts in the bedrock, which you can't see at the moment. Actually, the water does flow in, and it comes in here, and then it goes into that 45-foot drain. And then I am looking east down the structure. Again, towards that little closet, but I the lower well, and we're looking back at the uh, transceiver here. Just sitting in the closet, and at the moment it's still quiet. So go for another 15 minutes or so and see what happens. If anything comes up, I'll report it. Uh, the temperature here is about uh, around 17 degrees Fahrenheit, minus seven or eight degrees Celsius. Pretty pretty chilly out there. It's sunny, so uh, not too much activity though. Hmm, Dennis. So I apologize. I apologize for that. Yeah, I know. I talked during. I had the video. Um, Note to self: time, I had Do to not talk while trying to record radio. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, at that point, I I apologize. I, I had been sitting there watching it. Nothing was happening. I said, "Well, I better record something." And it chirped a few times. And then I just started talking. So I apologize to your audience and to you for that. That's why I got to record it and do it properly with a computer next time. So did you get any chirps without you talking over them? Um, I thought I did. But now listening to that, I thought I had it on the thing while it chirped a few times. I think I made a comment about it. But I thought he actually picked up the chirps on the thing hmm. by the sound of it. There, there was one. Um, there was one. Sorry to interject. But there was one chirp that we, we got from him. Oh, good. So when we come to Thomas, we'll, you got some data. Oh. At least we know the system can work. Yeah. I'll keep my lips quiet next time, but we'll have the computer on it. Quick, yeah. uh, you know, there nope. used to be this phobia in radio called dead air. And, you know, radio guys <laughs> are, are desperate not to have dead air. So it sounds to me like you are living a former life as a radio guy because you couldn't just stand, just let dead air you had to say something, and you're looking around, and you're narrating where you are, which is very logical, except I could only hear a couple like at the beginning, and they were obviously being yeah. very respectful, and they said, well, if Dennis is going to talk, we're not. <laughs> I think you're right, <laughs> but I'll do better next time. When I, when I, I actually – all right, that's an audio. Uh, I, there's also I've, – I've got a video file here. Uh, let me play that and see if it's different, okay? And we've been in here quite a while, listening to 144.1. And uh, this is inside of a small closet, one of the five closets in the Oracle Chamber, the largest structure still intact at this place. You know, you may and, inadvertently uh, um, have told us something very important because we were looking to see whether there would be a difference if you were out in the open receiving these transmissions with the radios or inside some kind of a granite enclosure. And right. that might be one of the variables that the next time uh, uh, Maria does her thing that we have you measure one radio inside, one radio outside simultaneously recording 
So we see if there is an effect on being shielded, screened inside a uh, granite chamber. Yeah, definitely was inside the chamber, and it is all granite in there, mica, quartz, and feldspar, but it's, uh, I'm totally inside the chamber doing that. So, yeah, next time I can do an outside one, too. Yeah, okay. Um, let me bring on, if I can get my computer here to do the proper scrolling. Let me bring on, since he came on at the appropriate time, let me bring on Thomas, uh, give you a little bit of background here. Oh, I clicked on the wrong thing. Darn, 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 darn. This is computer stuff in real time. Uh, let me do this. Okay. Uh, Thomas, is, a.k.a. James Teej, is a Grammy-nominated musician and a fervent futurist with keen interest in space, technology, global politics, meditation, metaphysics, sacred frequencies and geometry, ancient cultures, and exopolitics. He's also, you know... Uh, rocked with bands, led bands, produced bands, and has a deep interest in the so-called fringe sciences, which stem in part from his numerous personal experiences of high strangeness, another word for hyperdimensional interactions, on his worldwide travels. Thomas, did you hear and decode anything from Dennis' brief foray into the unknown? Um, yeah, so it, it seems to be pretty quiet. Um, now, the good thing is, is that we seem to be having a similar type of behavior from the radios, which, I mean, we've now, uh, we've now seen this similar behavior on, I don't know, I think maybe four or five different radios. Um, and what Dennis was saying, that it was just very silent for a while and then would sort of start acting up. Um, it's kind of a good indication that, that, you know, we're, we are generating some type of response. I think in the subsequent transmission, uh, being able to digitally connect to the radio, um, is going to be important. Um, you know, primarily because, you know, if we're acoustically recording this from the speaker on the radio, the speaker on the radio has got a very defined uh, frequency range. Now, that's not to say that we're not picking things up from uh, there, um, but I must say that um, based off of what we've analyzed from Maria's recordings, um, really being in these uh, hyper-energetic sites um, that there seems to be like a very, very crazy depth uh, and resolution uh, to the sounds, um, you know, that we were able to to pick up some interesting things, uh, which is what we sort of went over uh, the last time we went over this last week, um, you know, such as the voice, um, the, uh, the specific pi frequency tone, um, so there's definitely some, some intelligence behind it. Um, the other thing that we, I think we sort of learned from Maria is that, and, and this was actually kind of a good thing that she went ahead and did, um, sort of despite, I think, the, the, the conversation that the, the three of us had had before she went and did her second uh, transmission was, you know, we were kind of thinking that we would be able to establish a bit of a baseline uh, prior to the transmission, then do the transmission out, um, and then record for 10, 15 minutes. 
Um, whereas Maria really came back with a very long uh, recording. We had about 100, I believe it was 140 or 150 minutes of recording. Um, and it was in there that we kind of saw this, this stuff. You know, again, we're not seeing any kind of repeating patterns in the actual substance of the, uh, of the frequencies. Um, it doesn't sound like your traditional sort of uh, static. Uh, but, ge- you know, genuinely the behavior of the radio that Dennis was able to pick up, um, even with him sort of, you know, talking over it, and which was actually, you know, to, to be fair, I was actually quite interesting because you were able to kind of mentally visualize a little bit as to where the positioning of the radio was and, you know, where he was within the site. So, you know, I think having that type of, of uh, uh, additional sort of data, um, it is great. So, I mean, even I think if, uh, Dennis, if you're going to be recording digitally, um, you know, by all means, you know, still, you know, kind of, you know, talk about some of the history, the positioning, sort of talk about some of this stuff. It gives a little bit of context. And as long as we can kind of correlate that to uh, specific timestamps uh, within the audio, then, I mean, I think we'll, we'll have, have some, some interesting, uh, some interesting stuff. Um, you know, that being said, uh, this past week I was able to review um, the stuff from Dennis, but I was also able to go over uh, some of Raw's material, ah. uh, which, yes, uh, which I went over with John, uh, with Jonathan. So Jonathan actually provided me with, with some of Raw's material, so I was able to do a bit of an independent analysis of that, and we both were able to identify the same thing. Um, you know, so I don't really want to kind of take away from Jonathan's items. I think we've both basically highlighted uh, the most interesting part of what Raw was able to pick up, uh, which was, for me, well, I think... Well, then, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Why don't you go into Dennis, then we'll go to John, then we'll come back to you for a kind of a combined conversation on what John uh, and you have picked up from Roz. Uh, how far away is that uh, balanced truck, Dennis, from America's Stonehenge, physically, as the crow flies? Ooh, I'd have to look that up on Google Maps, but it's in North Salem, New York, which is the same name as our town. Um, I know it's like a four or five hour drive, but the uh, statute miles, I'd have to actually go to Google Maps. It's a few hundred miles. It's north of New York City, uh, between that and Albany, I think, roughly. Poughkeepsie, Kingston, New York area. Mm-hmm. So it's hundreds of miles to the west of you. Yeah, kind of southwest of us. Yeah, and there's about 500 different sites. We call them megalithic type sites in the Hudson Valley, Dutchess, Westchester, uh, and going out towards Monticello, Woodstock, New York, and Bethel, New York. If you include that whole area, about 500 of these stone-type structures, including serpent walls, chambers, and standing stones, we call monoliths, things like that in that area, plus the balanced rock. So if we think of this as the old boy network, really old, um, Maria transmitting from, you know, the kind of, you know, mother cathedral, and it's fanning out through this ley line energetic web around the planet, it would energize all of those sites more or less depending upon whether they're on a primary line or a secondary. Am I, am I getting that right, Maria? Yes, that's right. It's like you get a, a lot of uh, very strong lines that are much wider, and then you get shorter lines. You, you even don't get uh, necessarily full 
global lines all of the time. So you can have some that are global, but some that are localized as well. Uh, and that's quite important. So it, it's like the veins and the arteries. See, the thing that I think is important for people to understand is that Maria is transmitting on a handheld radio, which has a little uh, stub antenna. It's a, it's a monopole, one quarter of the wavelength of the, of the frequency, and it's only eight watts. There's no way that her transmission or induction from her transmission or resonance with her receiver can be reaching 4,000, 5,000 miles around the planet and resonating these other radios in the network like Dennis's in New Hampshire, like Ra's in, in New York State, about 30 minutes north of New York, or uh, on an earlier transmission, uh, Michael Lee Hill, who was in Florida, uh, outside of a sacred site down there, uh, an ancient mound site. And, you know, in, in other words, this is not normal radio communication as one would probably not expect. But even well, this now, is what I think. Go ahead, Tom. Yes, yeah, Richard. You know, sorry to interject, but I mean, this is something that I would sort of um, kind of elaborate on that is, you know, the, the, the distance, the power of these radios. And this was kind of, you know, early on when I, when I joined um, the project and was starting to discuss some of this stuff with uh, some of the other team members. Um, I mean, we knew that these, these radios were not going to be uh, equivalent to what the, the first sort of uh, transmission that went out uh, uh, was like, you know, using a, a larger sort of antenna array. The thinking behind this is really kind of relying on this natural power amplification of these sites. Well, in, in, of, the, in the Kozarev model, Nikolai Kozarev, who was a Russian who did a lot of torsion field work back in the 50s in the old Soviet Union. Quartz is a torsion active material. Quartz also responds to electromagnetic waves and to physical pressure, what's called a piezoelectric effect. The idea, the model that I had in mind was if Maria transmits from Stonehenge through the, through the monoliths that, you know, gird the center and the outer periphery it's resonating the quartz in those structures which in turn is resonating the torsion field which in turn is resonating the lane line connective energy network which in turn is resonating the uh sacred sites at the other end of that network which in turn is then creating some kind of very feeble tiny maybe radio emission, which is being picked up thousands of miles away by the radio. That's one model. Well, I think, uh, you know, and it's funny because as we've been sort of uh, chatting, I was, I've been discussing some things on a, uh, a group with some other people that are into different, uh, different fields. And something that they mentioned was, you know, if you're kind of putting the intention out there to make contact with something, I mean, that's, that's part of this, right? So, I mean, we're utilizing this network as we would with a, you know, if we would want to call it like a hyperdimensional internet uh, to make contact with something, somebody like, I mean, what it is, I mean, is, is what we're still trying to parse uh, to parse through, but what it is um, and who it is. 
Exactly. But what we have noticed, and I mean, this is now, I mean, we're kind of beyond the point of this just being sort of happenstance. We're not dealing with a radio, um, nor are we dealing with frequencies that, um, you know, it's, it's not as, as though we are putting out what our schedules are in terms of when these experiments are happening, right? So, I mean, for somebody to basically go and, and sort of pollute um, uh, some of the, the, the data that we're receiving back by, you know, broadcasting something specifically on these frequencies at these specific times, um, is, is just, it's, it's pretty unlikely. So what's interesting to me is that, so we're seeing, you know, a, a very uh, sort of a, a, an incredible amount of depth in the digital recordings, okay, because we're not limited to this sort of finite uh, frequency range. Secondly, you know, what we've seen is that there's a sort of an intensity difference. It's, it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a, um, uh, a gradient, right? So, for example, when Maria was like right smack in the middle of a Stonehenge, I mean, the energy, the feeling, you know, from the recordings was so energetically powerful. Um, it was, it was actually really kind of masking a lot of our ability to be able to parse through some of that, uh, that audio information and, and, and see if there's something that, that got picked up. Then in her second transmission where she was, you know, geographically located a little bit further away from this super like hyper intense kind of, you know, point, um, that's where we started really kind of seeing some incredible stuff. So, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, there, we're, we're, we're detecting some, you know, oddities in the acoustic recordings. We're detecting, you know, a whole bunch of just incredible depth and beauty um, to these recordings when we're digitally recording them. And the most important thing is, is that there seems to be sort of this, this kind of echo effect. It's like, you know, something's going out from a very, very powerful uh, um, uh, signal amplifying location. And it's not that it's like activating the whole network, but I think, you know, the message is going out. And then in these other networks, so for example, um, you know, because I was able to also go through some of Keith's recordings. And Keith's recordings were kind of the like the original some of the original chirps that we had. The variety, the the complexity of the rhythmic structure of the you know we you know in what I was able to analyze because Keith did a very fantastic job in terms of sort of time marking when he was recording some of these things. He acoustically recorded it, but I'm I'm not too sure what kind of equipment he used um, to to record it. Um, but it was very clear. So it was, I, I was able to work well, with Well, physically, it. he's right outside Washington, D.C., and I'm particularly interested in his results because the Washington Monument, according to Sarita's model, was an incredibly modern, ancient, uh, monopole, hyperdimensional transmitter designed to raise consciousness and do a whole bunch of other things to the founding of this nation. And I really wanted to get good recordings within the field of the monument to test Sarita's idea that it also is on the old boy network and it's resonating like crazy when we've been doing this. So after having analyzed his, I mean, this is sort of the difference in what I heard from Keith. So, you know, when we first started getting these chirps coming in, there was almost like a frantic uh, feeling to them. Like it didn't sound like digital distortion. Um, there wasn't any kind of 
uh, discernible or definable pattern to them, but there was kind of like a, the only way that I can explain it would be like a feeling was kind of like, you know, kind of like an anxious, like, you know, and and the pacing was actually quite quick. Way back, way back when, when telegraphers were, you know, the internet of the fledgling United States, you could tell who the operators were on the telegraph key by the cadence and the strike and the timing of the keystrokes in the in the Morse code telegraphy. I got that same impression from listening to those early chirps. There were chirp periods when they were kind of gentle and complacent, and there were other periods where they're urgent and frantic, like, pay attention, pay attention. And it's all in the feel of the cadence of the chirping. Exactly. So Keith's is much more of a calm kind of cadence. At no point when I was, you know, going through his recordings, did I get the sense, of, like that sense of urgency. Um, the other thing that was kind of weird is that it came across as being a little bit more conversational, uh, whereas some of the rhythmic structures of what, you know, John and I were able to um, uh, get out of Maria's recordings almost bordered along the lines of musical (laughs) and that kind of ends up and that kind of ends up sort of leading into what we were able to hear in Ra's recording um you know which I think would probably be good to kind of go I mean I think we're about five six minutes away from the top of the hour so I think that would be kind of a good thing to jump into well hang on we're actually three minutes away so can we go do you have a a version of Dennis's analysis that you can play for us i can play for you know is it off of, uh, yeah off of dennis's there was literally one isolated chirp um so, so is mean, that your I item didn't number even, one no i didn't even i didn't even include that oh, okay. um because okay. it was just it was very similar I, again like i mean i think the important thing is i mean you know the 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 positive result that we got from dennis going and physically doing that is the fact that we've now gained another sort of correlation that the the behavior of the radio is is very similar so you know i think it's a good justification to go and you know try to do this uh you know try to do this again but have his setup be actually recording digitally um you know to get a secondary sort of source um well wait, wait, wait. Dennis, to... Dennis didn't you tell me that your daughter-in-law had fixed it so the next session you can record digitally from the radio into the computer in your den Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. She, in fact, I double checked with her at the uh, birthday dinner tonight, and she goes, "Yep, it's working." So she got it working, um, and it should be. Uh, we should be fine. Absolutely. Yeah. So perfect. I mean, I think that that's fan- I think that that's yeah. fantastic. And and what I would what I would recommend is trying to kind of identify what you feel as being sort of the most energetic point of the site to be able to go there and and do the experiment. We are at the top of the hour. My guest this morning, Maria Wheatley, who's been our prime experimenter in Stonehenge now twice. Dennis Stone, owner and president of America Stonehenge. And Thomas Mathers, one of our analysts, producer, musician, sacred music and geometric specialist. And we're going to bring on Jonathan Womack, 
is an old friend of ours and has a unique background appropriate to uh, trying to figure out what's going on here. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're listening to some Ukrainian music recorded by Volodymyr Bystrygakov back in 1982 from an album called, appropriately, Alice Through the Looking Glass. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It is the witching hour here in the Land of Enchantment, just past midnight. So welcome to the Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight for March 12th and 13th, 2022. We've been giving you some background as to this extraordinary ongoing experiment, which we launched back in early December of 2021, where we send out a very high-powered radio signal, and we got responses on two specific frequencies. We then moved our transmission to a uh, handheld radio uh, with about an eight watt uh, output. It's compared to about a half a million effective radiated watts power. And we continue to get responses, but not just responses in the vicinity of the transmission, i.e. Maria Wheatley there in Stonehenge, but transmission reception half a world away, thousands of miles away, near other ancient sacred sites on an ancient kind of hyperdimensional internet that we have proposed for several years, links these incredibly ancient monuments in some kind of extraordinary hyperdimensional communications network. And lo and behold, the predictions of the model seem to hold true. So let's bring uh, John Womack on. Let me give you a little background on John. 
John is, let's see, how can I describe John? John has a unique background. Among others, he has kind of experienced some of this firsthand because he's been doing out-of-body experiences since the fall of 1965. He um, has a double major in English literature. Um, he uh, has been a producer for many, many years. Again, you know, worked in a, in a rock band. Uh, in the late 70s, he discovered Robert Monroe's uh, book, Journeys Out of the Body, and realized he was no longer alone. Um, Starfire, a book by Ingo Swan, was another influential book that motivated John to explore beyond the solar system. He moved to the Boston area back in 83, where he worked as an IT media tech and licensed electronic technician. He spent decades now training in the martial arts, developing his techniques and chi. He's a lifelong musician, picking up the guitar at the age of nine, and uh, he also plays French horn and trumpet when he was in his old high school band. Today, he's working on 3D modeling and animation, video and audio editing, and producing content for a variety of streaming platforms. He even has a show called the Out of Body Experience Show, I believe. If I'm not correct, he will uh, correct me. And he's also written several books in an interesting series called the Ram IM series. So without further ado, John, welcome back to the other side of midnight. What are you? What have you made of Dennis's and Ra's recordings uh, on the network? Well, I did have a chance to look at Ra's recording, and um, it's strikingly similar to Maria's, except it doesn't have the amplitude. So it's it's like uh, your guitar amp set on five, whereas Maria at Stonehenge it it goes to eleven. But before I get into that, Richard, I I just want to take an aside here and mention 10 years ago, John Carter was released. And there's a wonderful deep dive article on this site is called The Wrap. And it goes from the 1917 publication of John Carter. And now over 100 years of Hollywood trying to make this movie, it was supposed to be the first animated movie and it was it was disney and they had all these problems so snow white and the seven dwarves became the first animated movie so throughout the the last hundred years you see these different directors and studios and they bought the rights and they got almost you know almost made and the thing with me um i thought this was going to change things big time when this movie came out because i'm like Mars is going to, you know, this is going to be a big step toward disclosure and it's got all this stuff is going to happen. And I was really expecting all this stuff. And I, I always saw Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author, as someone who was remembering a, like a past and future life. They're getting leakage from the spiritual amnesia, but he's remembering, he's not just writing some fanciful book. He's remembering like, Gene Ronberry and other writers who I think were remembering parts from their other lives. Well, one of the things about the release of John Carter, and of course, Disney, for bizarre reasons, took out the word Mars, and they didn't promote it the way they should have. I mean, I'm going to do a whole program 
sometime in the next month or so, maybe, on the whole John Carter phenomenon, because it is 10 years. I think my own personal opinion, my hypothesis is that John Carter was a film made for the in crowd. Remember Roddenberry's rule. It's not real unless you see it in the movies or on television. I think it was made for the in crowd prior to what you expected and I expected, which was the beginning of a disclosure process leading to the announcement of ruins on Mars and on the moon and there's folks out there and we're not alone, all of this. And somehow that all got put on hold. And this movie, which in this model was made to brief the in crowd of what was waiting on Mars to be disclosed, somehow got sidetracked. And I'm quietly working on getting the right people to come on and talk about the background to a mega tentpole film by Disney that should have been incredibly successful. It was in terms of the plot, the narrative, the movie, but Disney did everything they could to sink it, to destroy their own film, because I don't think it was ever meant to be a mainstream public success. It was meant to be a big screen briefing for the in crowd of what's really waiting on the planet Mars. And I'm hoping to, uh, in the not too distant future, put together a show that will explore this idea in some significance and depth. So, John, please continue. Okay, well, I, as I said, I had some time to look at Ra's recording. And let's see, let me call up my images here. If you go to John's images on the other side of midnight.com, uh, I have number one, uh, reception full. This is what I see when I import it into, I use Adobe Audition. And as you look at this uh, Hertz wave, this yellow and purple and red, the things that stuck out to me uh, is my item number two. And I drew these circles and then sent it to you, Richard. I hadn't even listened to it yet. I just <laughs> wanted to show you that um, this right side circle is circling an X. And it, on the top right of the X, it even reminds me of the hooked X that Scott uh, Walter from American Unearthed has talks about a lot in, okay, in his let me, research. Let, let me stop you there. Uh, Dennis, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you know the background of Walter's explanation of the so-called hooked X in ancient archaeology? Well, the hooked X, he thinks, is a, the female and male symbol with a little hook on the top right side, the, the child. So it's male, female, and child, and it might be something to do with Christ, Mary, and their daughter, perhaps. And uh, Kensington Runestone has it. The Spirit Pond runestones up in Maine, and my dad actually worked on that site back in the early 70s habit. I believe we have a hooked X at our site. And the Westford Knight, which is supposed to be from Sir Henry Sinclair in 1398, it's in Westford. It's still there. It's on bedrock. We have a cast of it full scale in our museum. About uh, five years ago, some young men looking at it uh, saw a hooked X on that too. And there's a couple other hooked Xs over in Europe. So it's male, female, and child is what the hooked X, we believe, that's, it's symbolic of that. And because it's, we know and, Scott Walter's great. And it's replete mm -hmm. in many examples of ancient archaeology, right? 
yes. Okay. That's correct, yep. So here's the pattern, John. Since our friends out there, whoever we're talking to, who are talking back to us, appear to be focusing on ancient human history, beginning with Stonehenge and the related you know, network of ancient sites, it's so interesting that Ra, which is short for uh, Ralph, uh, his last name is Castelledo, I believe. He's been a friend of Maria's for many, many years. Um, he volunteered to do the listening uh, at one of these sites just north of New York City, a so-called Balanced Rock in the Hudson Valley. And he recorded what he got. He sent it to you, sent it to Thomas, sent it to David. And when you printed it out, what was struck me, because what we're looking at in your item number two is basically a time versus frequency <clears throat> color map of the frequencies contained in the radio reception recording, right? Right. So we're seeing in these uh, frequency plots what appears to be a specific geometric figure, kind of like a primitive 2D picture laid out by plotting frequency against time from the transmissions that Ra recorded and the X, which I can clearly see in your number two on the far right in your ellipse, if that really is the hook into, pun intended, the ancient archaeological interpretation of the hook X, which is replete in uh, Ogham, I believe, in ancient archaeology, both in the old world and the new world, which is where Scott Walter's interpretation becomes very, very relevant. So, please continue. Indeed. Now, if we go back to image one, and you look at the right side where the hooked X is, it's just easier to see what I'm going to point out, because there's no ellipse in the way. But when you look at the top right of the X, and you see this little hook on there, you can see that the top part of the image, the, the red and purple, how that changes i mean if you follow the timeline right to left it stays pretty much the same and then you know you add this added tone to the you know this hook to the x and i mean you actually see this you don't even have to listen to some of this stuff you you know what it's going to sound like when when you see it here and another thing the on the left side i i have the ellipse in, in image two and Let me go back to image this two. also struck me. You have to go back to number two, the ellipse on the left. You see around in the middle of the ellipse, you have this descending line that it's not like the top two lines at the top. At, at the top, you have this red line. That it's a very sharp, defined, thin line that goes from left to right. And it has... a just a, a few degrees of slope, of downward slope, and then okay, below that... Okay, we need that, to tell everybody what they're looking at. The, the plot is from bottom to top is frequency. So, and, yes. and, the, and the actual scale is way over on the right because I have to move it way over to see what is what. So the higher frequencies are at the top. The lower frequencies are at the bottom, right? Correct. And, and, and the color 
relates to intensity. The reddish purplish is quiet. The yellowish is much louder. Okay? Right. So we see in those lines near the top of your left-hand ellipse in number two, we have a frequency, but it's drifting in frequency. The thin red one is going down in frequency, and the bright yellow one is going up in frequency, and they're near the top of your ellipse. What you're going to call attention to is near the center of the ellipse, which is a figure, which again is a frequency drift, but it's totally different. Totally different. It's much blurred. It doesn't have the sharp edges that the other two lines have. It has this zigzag motion that reminded me of something that I've been working on. It's kind of related, which is the Utah swell. But um, I was just trying to think if that is a symbol, uh, you know, if they send us a hooked X, is this another symbol that we should recognize? And in addition to this, this reminds me a bit of, and Maria's recording as well, it reminds me a bit of sheet music because when you write a, a symphony or you write a, a movie, a motion picture soundtrack, um, you see this rise and fall where you'll have the violins are ascending over several measures and then you'll have the the horn section is descending and you then you end up with these really nice beautiful you know musical sounds and ratios and so there's a lot of descending we didn't get any of this I mean, music is defined as tone, rhythm, and pitch, and these, all these have tone, rhythm, and pitch. The pitch is the slope that we see, and we played some rhythms last week from Maria's recording that are right out of, uh, you know, a cantina. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of a hyperdimensional cantina. <laughs> yeah, if I could just if I could just get uh, come in here for a second. Yeah, of course. Because, no, no, that's you know, good. this is this is sort of like the visual representation, and and I'm not using any analyzers that sort of are are generating like a histogram like this. Right. So that's the 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 visual part of it. Um, the thing is, is that like so um, you know just to kind of supplement this. So I was able to actually filter out some of like the really noisy parts, and you can hear those tones that are making those shapes. Now, the crazy thing is, is that towards the end of it, if you really listen closely, the frequency patterns that are being played, exactly what John was just saying right now, are totally musical. It is totally musical. And I actually, I didn't have, I ran out of time. I didn't have enough time because for whatever reason, there's so much ambient noise kind of on top uh, what we're trying to focus our listening ears to is kind of really being overloaded with, you know, a bunch of this other, this other kind of noise, let's call it. Um, but there is a specific uh, sequence. It's very, very musical. So what I was trying to do is I was actually starting the process of actually by ear uh, replicating because the, the, the initial part of the graphics that he's showing you is kind of like these slopes, right? So it's a frequency that's going like, sort of like a Doppler effect. But so you, what's interesting is in the second half, and that's where he's kind of highlighted in his item two, 
um, was kind of generating that interesting sort of look within the histogram um, or the histograph sort of way of looking at the, the, the spectral analysis. Um, it is like super musical. So like, you know, as, as a supplement, I mean, I don't know if you had, uh, John, if you had included any of the actual audio files, uh, but I did within this exact sort of part, and this wasn't planned, by the way. I mean, we just, we, we both kind of stumbled onto this part of Raw's recording. Um, but I did include into the, the, the link that I sent you as part of my items, um, specifically that section. So you can hear it's, it's the first item under my SoundCloud link, which is the raw frequency sweep and then pattern. Um, I, I mean, it's, it, you really got to kind of listen for it. I, I did my best to try to kind of just keep those sounds intact, but there is a lot of other kind of chaotic noise going on. But you can, if you listen to it, sort of hear what we're sort of talking about here visually. Yes, I I did do some of the same things you did. I used a band separator, a bandwidth separator, okay. to yeah single out uh, some of these these layers. Oh, are you going to play something, Tom? I was going to try to play uh, what, but I can't get the darn thing to stop. Uh, it wants to keep going. Ah, okay. <laughs> no, no, we don't want to do that. Okay. All right, let me let me try to play from Thomas's version uh, and see if we can hear what uh, you guys are talking about. Uh, and I'll play it through once, and then I'll play it again, and you can describe what people should be listening for. And I have it really loud. I hooked up a mixer and a loudspeaker sitting next to me, so I can crank it if you want. Oh, good, good, good. Okay, well, let's do yeah. John's first, okay? So this is the musical part of the in item number two, that's highlighted in John's work by the ellipse, right? Yes, I, I need to go quick just to three and four so I can show what I did. Number three is showing, wait, like wait, I wait, said, wait. the band. Wait, wait, I have to go back then. All right, let me have to find your stuff. Uh, I was going to play. Okay, here we are. So we want to go to three and four? Yes, number three, this is a bandwidth from 400 hertz to 4200 hertz, which encompasses the yellow um, lines that we see, the slopes and, and the hooked X. Right. But that, and then in item four, um, oh, I'm just highlighting the audio sample that I'm going to play here. So let me bring that up. It's, it's basically the hooked X segment and, and you'll be able to hear some of this. So let me, okay. let me do this and here we go. I just hear noise. Thank God wow. we have...
computers that can make images out of this because my ear is not hearing it. You are hearing something there? Oh, yeah, so gosh, yeah. amazing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing. But but Richard, I mean, I like so I, I again like I think maybe the file that I prepared for you will be a little bit easier to to listen to because I have filtered out quite a bit of the other sort of noise, okay. so you won't be sort of as, as distracted. If you play the item number one on that SoundCloud link, if it plays for you, it should give you a good uh, indication. Let me do this. Okay, here it is. Okay, like let me, a pot boiling over. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you what I heard. I heard a lot of noise, and then faintly, like about one third from the end, from the beginning rather, I began to hear this tone changing frequency, but being almost drowned out by the noise. Is that really background noise? Is that random noise, or is there signals in that pattern that we're not? I'm not here. I mean, to, to be able to to deconstruct that, I mean, it's, I mean, that, that's a bit of an undertaking. The thing is, is that it's a very odd uh, sound to be coming through. And the thing is, is that, you know, and again, I mean, this is coming over the radio. I mean, when you listen to this with, you know, a high, uh, high fidelity uh, headphone, like the initial frequency sweep going down is quite consistent. But then when it's coming back up, it's doing these kind of note jumps. It's going. It's almost sounds in in music terms. It sounds like what's called an arpeggiator, which is basically, you know, an arpeggiation is just kind of repeating notes. And each one of those notes, each one of those notes is a frequency, right? Well, exactly. So the thing is, is that because it's quite it's quite deep within the mix, and and there's a lot of this other ambient noise. I mean. It, again, I, it was very challenging to kind of really carve out that enough so that you would be able to hear it. Because well, if I can hear it, anybody can hear it. Ah. Yeah, but it is very much a – it is an odd, odd, odd – Now, what um, do you mean by odd? Remember, the binary question we're trying to answer, is this just noise or is there intelligence here? I, I would say that, I mean – Commit you know, yourself. Not, Come on, Thomas. I would say the first part, like when we're hearing a frequency sweep, um, could be some type of natural phenomena, could be a phenomena of like RF frequencies. I'm not not sort of, you know, um, I'm not educated enough within the specifics of like the radio frequency world. That being said, the way that there's a pattern in the, where that signal kind of comes back up, it's got some complexity to it. And, I mean, again, it is not something that 
picked up before. So again, like what seems to be kind of happening as we're continuing the, this project and we're continuing the research and, you know, have these subsequent attempts and then are getting better and better and better fidelity in terms of the audio that we're being able to analyze. You know, as I said to you earlier this, uh, this week uh, on the phone, there's not going to be a silver bullet for us um, in terms of an algorithm or a specific application that's going to be able to do this work for us. So, you know, the best way to kind of approach this right now is really by ear, um, you know, which funnily enough is, is kind of how I've always approached music anyways. It's always been by feeling and by ear. Um, even when I was first learning, uh, you know, classical music as a, as a child, I was, I was somebody that learned and was able to memorize and, and hear things by ear. So, you know, being able to single out a voice, you know, or these specific tones in these very long recordings that are, that it's kind of like, you know, what doesn't belong here? It's like looking at a, uh, you know, those, those games that you play as kids and you see all of these different shapes or these different sort of pictures. And it's like, okay, well, what doesn't belong there? Well, that's what we're kind of looking at. We're looking at these things that are popping into these recordings that, you know, are kind of standing out for us because we're sitting there and methodically and very patiently sort of going through and listening to, you know, um, really at this point, hours of basically static, right? Um, okay, we know, are at the bottom of the hour. We're at the bottom of the hour, so let's hang, hang it there. My guests this morning are too numerous to mention. Go to the website. You'll see all their biographies, their names their background, their expertise. The one commonality is they're all musicians. Apparently, it takes musicians to interact with and to understand and to interpret um, extraterrestrial communication. Because I can almost guarantee that whoever we're listening to is not on this planet. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And this is becoming one of my favorite break songs. We shall return. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 
33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And that's what we're hoping for, that we can establish contact with someone who is our friend. Now, one of the indicators to me very strongly that we are, in fact, talking to somebody that's kind of on the side of the peaceful aspect of the human race is that they have given us fundamental numbers, frequencies, even now geometry, which seems to be telling us to look to our own ancient heritage, our own human history, who we once used to be, who we could be again, who we need to become again if we are going to avoid the obviously gathering and developing global catastrophes that have occurred in the last uh, couple of months. So are they our friends? I guess for a lot of people, it's going to depend on what they say next. And transmit thought energy far beyond the moon. You close your eyes, you concentrate, you gather us away. To send us message, we need to lay our contact day. You know, one of the interesting things about Karen's song and she actually didn't write it. It was written by uh, another uh, songwriter who was uh, head of a group called Clatu. And some night I will play the kind of background story to this uh, very interesting song. One of the things that she says in the, in the lyrics is, you know, with your minds. So one of the experiments we're going to do, uh, which is kind of by consensus, is we're going to uh, do an experiment where we don't use any as uh, Forbidden Planet said, instrumentality at all. We're not going to use the radios. We're not going to use, you know, any other measuring systems. We're going to record on the radios, but we're going to have our away team experimenter. Probably Maria is a good choice because she's very psychic. She's a dowser, you know, and we may have Ra participate because he's able to sense these things too. We're going to have them simply think the message, simply feel the moment, simply be in that space where the connection between 3D and 4D melds seamlessly 
and then we'll see if we get any technological response that we can present to you. Stay tuned for that. That will be coming up sometime in the next several weeks. Don't know exactly when, but uh, it's on our list. Anyway, back to my uh, guest of the morning, Thomas and John. Uh, John, where do you want to go next? Well, I want to do a quick aside, Richard. I keep meaning to say something, but I'm an award-winning writer, too. And when one of my authors called me one day some years ago and said, I just entered my book in a contest, and I went and looked. And I had this feeling I knew I was going to win. I just had to send them my book. So I sent it to the Hollywood Book Festival, and I kind of forgot about it. And six months go by. I knew I was going to win my category. So my author, same author called. She said, did you, you know, they announced the winners. Did you see? So I go on the website. Not only did I win my category, I won top honors. They pick one book out of all categories that was the most um, compelling book and the most uh, that would easily transfer to franchises and, and, and that sort of thing. And and then my other book, Old Souls, won as well. So it was really a psychic kind of thing. And I haven't entered any other contest, but uh, I am a two-time award-winning um Writer, and, and in fact, you read Dogman Cometh a couple of weeks ago. Excellent book. Excellent book. Thank you. I love that So book. we need to add you to the list because <laughs> you've been doing Out of Body. Obviously, you just proved you have prescience. So we need to put you on the list of communications. And we'll, we'll, I'm, I'm really serious. I want to try this mental communication with whoever's out there and see if we get interesting, equivalent, or maybe very different responses if we don't use technology, but we try simply to connect with, with them, whoever them are, totally different hyperdimensional level. Yeah, so totally, I think that, oh, oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, John. Um, I was going to say that, you know, I've been doing some of this already just on my own, and some, some noises on Maria's recording that I thought was wind and rain I, she was plugged in, um, you know, to the, she was recording digitally. I thought I was hearing weather and, you know, but. Um, well, if, I, what we need to do is we can't freelance this. It's got to be organized. So we're all on the same clock. We need to know what we're going to be listening for. So it actually is reproducible. I think that's called science. Anyway, back exactly. to the analysis of uh, Ra and Dennis. Back to the analysis. Well, number five uh, is the same thing. I used the bandwidth filter to single out the high end, you know, that sharp, thin red line at at the beginning. Uh, This is item number five on my list. And, uh, you know, I had this circled in the ellipse uh, earlier images. and, And then I... Well, wait, you know, what, what, what are we seeing here? We're seeing uh, just the top end of the Hertz wave of, you know, my number one and two images. Uh, number two image, I, I right, have the two right. ellipses. And so this is the top end of that because I just wanted to hear this thin red line. And actually, I don't think it's worth playing because you're probably 
If you didn't hear the other one, <laughs> it's so clear. I'm the worst uh, person to hear this stuff, obviously. And then, um, you know, my other items are kind of a bust because I, I was a bit distracted this week. My cat lost a fang and it's all infected and I got to oh, take her no. into the, she's lost weight and all this. So, um, but uh, yeah, I was a little preoccupied. So I didn't realize that Ra's recording wasn't digital, that he was just recording um, acoustically. And therefore it didn't even occur to me that when I heard, if you go back to my items, uh, image, image number two, item number two, you know, I have these two ellipses. And then I also, I have a square around a section near the bottom of this Hertz wave that just, um, you know, kind of stuck out to me. So when I went to listen to it, it sounds like uh, an internal combustion engine that's coming, you know, you have the Doppler effect and it's, I, I called it an engine noise and, you know, a truck or a plane or something going. And I'm thinking, what the heck would the ETs be sending us? <laughs> <laughs> and then you realize that, that uh, Rob was recording uh, acoustically with a microphone and it was probably ambient sound somewhere near the parking lot of, of Balanced Rock. Exactly. Well, yeah. So, I mean, when I spoke with John, when I, when I called John this week and we were kind of talking about that and then we kind of, you know, sort of – you know, clarified that. The interesting thing, though, is still, and, and you can kind of see this in what he's highlighted, and, and I love these visual representations, um, because you can see, you know, the, these lines that you're kind of seeing drawing down is the frequency kind of sweep going down, right? Yep. So, you know, the, like, I mean, again, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably hard for some people to, to hear maybe what we're hearing, um, the interesting thing is not so much when it's going down, it's how it goes back up because it's not going back up in a, in a linear way. Okay. This is where this kind of patternation, this, this arpeggiation, like where would that be coming from? I mean, so, that's coming so, through. So, on the so, so it basically thing. jumps in frequency as opposed to a sliding smooth change. It's still rising up, but it's kind of doing like some type of a sequence. And, and that's why, like, I was really trying to, because we have been finding some interesting information specific to the actual frequencies um, that we're seeing. See, for, um, for it, the ordinary listener, what mm -hmm. I think is really important about what you just said and covered, John and mm -hmm. Thomas, you did not know <clears throat> or remember that Ra had recorded his data acoustically and you came across an anomaly you thought it sounded like something like car engines or whatever. You found out later that <clears throat> without knowing what he was doing, you independently arrived at the correct solution, even though it was a blind experiment. You did not know that that was capable of being recorded because you thought he was recording a totally different way. So well, it, proves, it, it, it proves to me the verisimilitude of, of this whole approach. Well, no, here's the thing. I mean, like, you know, it was clear, I mean, for me at least, and, you know, again, like I'm not really too familiar with what John's setup is, um, but I mean, I did, 
understands. And, and Raw had told me that he, for whatever reason, he was trying to record into his, com- uh, his computer. So I'd had, I'd had conversations with Raw before. So I knew that he'd recorded this acoustically. Yeah, but John now, the did thing not. Is that, John didn't know. No, no, I know. But the thing is, is that the main area that John identified was the exact same area that I had identified as well, which is really where you're seeing this kind of interesting, you know, uh, frequency sweep and then doing this kind of staggered sort of, you know, jump back up. Um, that that's not ambient noise. No, 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 no. I'm talking about two separate, <laughs> yeah. two totally yeah, yeah, separate yeah, yeah. things. Yeah, but no, I, just, people, I wanted to be clear. I wanted to be clear that that's yeah. Not, for people who yeah. think, okay, yeah. well, what are these guys up to? The idea that John could <laughs> reconstruct the uh, the fact that he had to be listening to an acoustic recording and kind of what it was, not knowing that that's what he was listening to is very important because it means you can do this kind of analysis and arrive at the right answer, even if you don't know your starting point. Well, I mean, I think what ends up happening is that we take a look at like really what we were able to capture last week. So, I mean, the voice that we captured is absolutely a voice. And after the two weeks of an said Ray or Gray, or Gray, or Gray, or Gray, yes, exactly. That is 100% a voice. It's not this. This wasn't picked up by a microphone. Um, I could tell by Maria's recording that she was recording directly um, from a digital source. Um, it's not something that we had heard anywhere else. Um, so whether this was, you know, and, and, you know, John and I had kind of talked about, you know, could this potentially be an EVP or something? We don't know what it is, but the bottom line is that there is definitely a voice that's like not supposed to be there. It is not something that's coming internal from the, um, from the radio. Um, you know, because I mean, a couple of weeks ago we encountered that where there was some odd behavior where some of the internal, well, we uh, had, we, there are pre-programmed. Uh, audio clips in the radio to let you know when you change frequencies or channels or when the battery's low. And we, we, we actually analyzed those inadvertently, John did, and we figured out immediately, oh, that's what they are. So we were able to discard those as real ET transmissions. The same way with the engine noises and all that. But you hmm. got this other aspect, like the voice that I can't hear uh, because I just can't, uh, but you guys can hear it, and more than you guys are hearing it. So I, I, I know it's there, and it either says Ray or Great or Gray. Are there any other possible options? Well, here's the, here's the thing. I mean, that's interesting. And, and if, there, if for anything else, it gives us a bit of a point of reference so that in subsequent recordings, we've got something to be able to look for. It's almost like you've heard somebody's voice. And now you can kind of pay attention for it, right? Now, the thing is, is that, you know, back to Ra's recording, um, you know, that sound, okay, you know, and, and, and apparently there's some sort of like an RF um, uh, type of uh, um, kind of artifact that you can pick up, which is, it's called like a radio bounce or something like that. No, no, okay? no, 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 it's, no, no. It's called a whistler. It, okay, a whistler, it, yes. It, it is caused by electrons gyrating around magnetic field lines in the Van Allen radiation belts, but it does not sound like that. It's no, much, okay, so much, okay. much shorter. It doesn't extend over minutes. It's seconds in length because okay, they're, so the they're moving Those, so fast. Yeah, these noises, right? If I was as a sound designer, 
okay? If I was to recreate this noise, you every single noise that you listen to can be kind of reconstructed. It's very similar to really kind of like the, the, the holographic sort of hyperdimensional geometric basis of, you know, the rationale behind some of the frequencies that we're actually, uh, you know, pointing this stuff out to and listening on, okay? It's the same thing with, with music. I mean, you've got a couple of primitive uh, types of sound oscillations that when combined, you know, basically form more complex sound. So you've got sine waves, you've got square waves, you've got sawtooth waves, you've got different types of noises. And, but these are, you know, these are basic sort of electronic uh, uh, vibrations, oscillations, right? Mm-hmm. So when we programmed, when we programmed initially um, these last two signals that went out, we were encoding mathematically, okay, um, specific frequencies that when combined would do divisions that would arrive to certain astronomical constants, uh, mathematical constants, um, um, planetary geolocation uh, positionings. Um, So the thing is, is that when we go back to what we picked up on RAS, is you then have to kind of think about, okay, well, so there's something that's generating this sound, right? I mean, it is just so far back into the mix. I mean, it's kind of difficult to get enough resolution to it to be able to break it down and say, okay, well, this is a combination of this, 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 right? But it is a manipulation of a sound oscillation. And, you know, when it's coming down and then when it goes back up and it's doing those jumps, it is not something that I have encountered naturally, right? No different than like what we're saying about the voice. The voice is coming through. These are coming through on, on frequencies where, I mean, as Dennis pointed out, I mean, the, the frequencies are completely empty for minutes at a time, you know, and then maybe we'll start, you know, getting more active and this is where the chirps are coming in. So uh, this is kind of like a, you know, it, it, it's, we're, we're following clues to try to get closer to a point where the accuracy and resolution of the message that's going out, the intention behind what we're putting out there, and this is why I think this this sort of expanded uh, reach of what you were just talking about, about doing some experiments simply by intention, because I think we're going to get results from that. My, my guess is that we will. Um, <laughs> sorry, but, sorry, I mean, Thomas, it, sorry. Yeah, and, and, this is, and this is something that I've, that I've spoken to, you know, John and, and David about when we've been actually analyzing this, this stuff. Because, but we just have to you know, plan it. We can't just decide on our own okay, I'm going to do this because it throws a monkey wrench into everything. So it's No, I know. But I mean, one of the things that I thought, for example, like when I was going over Maria's last, um, her last big uh, sort of data dump, okay, and I'm listening to this stuff. I mean, it wasn't just like listening to an unhooked television. And, you know, after about 15, 20 minutes of like listening to this, like I actually had to stop and I was like, okay, like, am I going to like, you know, get some kind of data dump downloaded into me? Like, you know, how safe is this? And I was kind of <laughs> laughing. Okay. You know, I was kind of laughing kind of laughing at the time but you know something that I did speak to to David about and you know another part, big part of my background is that you know I'm very into to meditation um, and astral projection and you know similar stuff that you know John and I have talked about so you know there is a language that we also kind of speak about that we've kind of left aside to sort of keep this you know pretty scientific but you know, I do believe that what is going to end up happening is that there is just only so much bandwidth that we can tap into 
Okay, even if we're tapping into this kind of higher dimensional uh, geometric, uh, geometric construct, okay, which is what I, I keep kind of thinking about when we're doing this is it's like we're kind of lighting a flare. We're lighting a flare with intention saying, hey, we're over here and we're kind of waving it above us, right? And then there's just enough sort of uh, information and contact that's coming back to sort of say, hey, you know what? It's not like we're wasting our time with this. Well, wait, I mean, wait, this wait, wait. Hang genu- on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I like technology because it's reproducible. I cannot reproduce a thought in your mind or in my mind or in Maria's or Dennis's. I can reproduce, as John has shown, as you've shown with the graphs, what we're getting on the radios. What we're well, that's getting, why it's been important to what, be digitally recording them because what we're this getting, is something that's audible. What we're getting appears to be images Someone is manipulating the frequencies to produce that hooked X. But just remember that the images that we're seeing are, re- are a reflection of what is coming through the audio. So it's a certain type of visual representation of what the audio is. Yeah, that's what I a mean, picture is. It's a representation. Well, Exactly, but the thing is, is that you're not going to, we're not going to see through the the, the histographic uh, representation of a spectral uh, sound analysis. I mean, we're not going to see like a picture of like a smiley face or something. Well, you right? don't know. The, the, you can manipulate the frequencies to create any no. picture. That's just scanning. I think the I think that the fact that this has that that this effort has gotten the kind of commitment from people like Maria and people like Dennis to go into these highly energetic points to be able to assist with the overall effort of the experiment is is really what we're kind of tapping into right now and and each each time that we're getting the information back remember what we were doing from the early transmissions we were including clues or oddities or parts of the previous transmission as a part of the subsequent transmission to say, hey, is this something that we should have noticed? And then you're putting that back out there. And then you're, it's, it's like a call and response type of thing. Now, it, there's only so much, like put it this way, I think at this point, and we've talked about this, we could end all of this experiment tomorrow. And the fact is, is that I think most people that are part of this team could feel that we've accomplished something because for us, we undoubtedly know that we've tapped into something. Wouldn't right? you like to know if at the bottom of the world, the Ukrainians accidentally heard our responses, decoded them, and all hell is broken loose because this is information that no one's supposed to know? Someone's well, not that, supposed to be in I, contact? I think that I, yeah, Can I, think I get that, a point in, Tom? Yeah, go for it. Thanks. Um, there are two things I want to mention, Richard, that are on my list of to-dos. I had sent an um, audio clip to, well, I call this the Godzilla EVP. It's at uh, Maria's recording at 23 minutes and 15 seconds. And it just sounds like, <laughs> I thought of Godzilla. Right. And um, so I sent it to uh, one person he, he manufactures all kinds of equipment that these ghost hunters use. And I sent it to my friend, Patty Negri, who's a regular on ghost adventures on the learning channel. And strangely enough, I have not heard back from either of them. So it's that's really bizarre. And the other point I want to mention is, you know, a few weeks ago, David Sarita said to me during the show, a little impatiently is forget about the whales because I kept bringing this up. And 
you know, when I get a notion, like I kept seeing Maria at Stonehenge when we were, you know, doing Oumuamua stuff, you know, I pay attention to these things. And when they're really clear, I know this is, you know, it's more important. It's got to happen and that kind of thing. So um, I want to, not tonight, but on another show, I want to introduce where and possibly how the whales and cetaceans fit into this. Well, I thought I had a contact um, that would be able to tell us with uh, dolphin researchers at the uh, Marine World, and it turns out that that's, that's a blind alley. It will not work, so we have to look at another uh, set of connections. Uh, I, I'm sure if we start making cold calls, we might be able to get somebody interested. I'd rather have someone who, like like Thomas, got to us because of a referral, and it was a wonderful serendipitous meeting, you know, to get into this because there's no money in it. It's got to be somebody who really gives a damn and is curious and wants to extend this idea that we're communicating with somebody and try to figure out what and who. So it's not. Well, here's the thing. So I wanted to kind of go back to what you were sort of you, you were talking about, you know, some of the world, the, the current world events. Like if we take a look at things like the Schumann resonance. OK. And if you take a look at the impact, the the impact on every human being, you know, mentally, OK, of all of these huge things that are going on. OK, we live in a, in a time as we perceive to be highly connected because of the internet. But I think that, you know, there's a much deeper connection that we as humanity sort of share that is connected intrinsically to this sort of hyperdimensional ge- ge- uh, uh, geometric sort of structure of, of reality itself. So when there are significant things going on, you're going to have those reverberations being felt and being sensed or detected uh, scientifically, whether it be through you know the, the type of effort that we've got going on or other types of things. But, you know, I think, you know, philosophically, as you start going you know, into things and you, and, and especially because we're dealing with sites that have been created by ancient cultures who I would say probably were much more in tune with the spiritual self, this, this other dimensional self that we as 21st century humans, a lot of them, you know, have just been completely blind to and that are slowly beginning to awaken. And, and this is the crazy thing that's going on right now is that I think that, you know, these efforts that we've got going on, you know, we're, we're applying a certain level of the scientific method. You know, these are grassroots uh, efforts, but if you actually take a look at things from a macroscopic scale, you know, looking down onto this little pale blue dot, you know, as Carl Sagan referred to us, um, Look at what we're doing even on this pale blue dot. I mean, because of the people and that you've been able to bring together, Richard, you know, we've got these international efforts that are being done with a full audit trail. You know, there's no – nobody is giving us this information to parse through. I think that we have to continue doing with what we're doing. If there's anybody out there that, you know, feels the, the, that desire like I did before coming a part of the team to sort of join in and, and help us out. Um, you know, I think we're onto something and I think the evidence that we've put forward has been able to demonstrate that and, you know, to be continued. Yes, everyone. We've run out of runway. 
that's all for this Saturday night. Uh, I want to thank Maria, Thomas, and Ron, who didn't say anything tonight, but obviously uh, he might come in and say something tomorrow night. Uh, and who else do we have? Uh, we've got Jonathan and Dennis, and uh, I know I'm forgetting somebody. Keith, of course, is in the background doing stalwart duty, and I'm really going to be intrigued to see what the further analysis of his recordings from Maria's transmissions uh, give us. Well, tomorrow night, we're going to be going to South Africa, among other places. We're going to be uh, literally talking to a producer, an Emmy Award-winning producer, Lionel Friedberg, who has brought you some astonishing television on mainstream channels and has had his own unique hyper-connected journey. So remember, until tomorrow night, Third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. And we are clear. Okay. <laughs> uh, hi there, Han. Nice of you to join there. Oh, I've been there. I've been there. I was going to, I, there was. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.